0: Across the UK, online, online and on DAB. Access all radios.
1: Talk radio. Give it some lip. Talk radio. Evening. Um, we're going to talk about a brilliant new book that's out about Paul Simon. Um, so, uh, stay tuned. We'll have a chat with the guy that wrote that and then we'll, you know, it's Friday. It's Friday. Yay! Friday feeling.
2: Late night, Ian Lee
0: on Talk Radio. We have ways of making you talk. You're
3: mine, say. You're mine, hey, schoolgirl in the second row. The teacher's looking over, so I got. meet I have to school at three she said hey babe I got a lot to do, do. it takes me hours when my homework's through Something we'll go steady so don't you fret. Ooh, not yet
1: To me with that I love it. Said, I'm sorry if I, I love it. I, l- I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, the other week <clears throat> I played that um, true or false song and I asked you to guess who it was. Uh, none of you guessed it was it was Paul Simon. Well, this is this is Simon and Garfunkel. Now, I was aware yeah, this is quite famous, this song. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: this is quite a famous song. This was before they were Simon and Garfunkel, when they were Tom and Jerry, and they kind of... Um, they, 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 they sort of had a hit and sort of had a bit of a... Oh, no, oh, they, it's not that good. Uh, they had a hit and then they sort of didn't have a hit and then they went off their separate ways and, you know, kind, kind of all kinds of things happened and then they got back together and became... Simon and Garfunkel, and I, I'm i quite... Here's the thing, you know I'm an old head, right? I, I, I'm in my mid-40s, and you know I love my 60s music. You know I love it, the Beach Boys and the Monkeys and, and, and the Beatles and all that. I was quite late coming to realise that Simon and Garfunkel... vocally a genius is, and Paul Simon is a fantastic poet. I, it, it's only in the last couple of years when I bought a box set of all their albums, for like 20 quid or something. And I sat down and properly listened to them. You know, I thought, wow, this stuff is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And I'm really thrilled. And I've was i been looking for a Simon and Garfunkel book for ages. And theres I think there's one or two out there that aren't very good. So I was so excited um, when I saw that there was a, a biography of Paul Simon coming out. And I was even more excited... When I saw it was written by a guy called Peter Ames Carlin, because I've read a couple of his books before. He's an excellent writer. Um, and he's written a brilliant book about the Beach Boys, one of my favorite Beach Boys books. He's written about loads of other bits and pieces as well. The book is called Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon. It's a weighty tone, but every page, every page is, uh, is a revelation. I'll tweet the link to where you can get it. I'm really thrilled though. We've got Peter Ames Carlin on the line. Evening, Peter. Hello, how are you? I'm very, very well, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. I loved, loved, loved your book. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Well, thank you very much. There, there, there hasn't really been a, a Paul Simon or a Simon and Garfunkel book before and that struck me as really odd because they were so huge that you know you look at the Beatles and I know you've contributed to the Beatles library you know there are thousands of books and the Beach Boys thousands of books but hardly anything about Simon and Garfunkel I wondered why that was
4: there are a couple good books or um, uh, that actually came out of uh, the UK about, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, yeah. uh, which are worth tracking down. A lot of good coverage of, of uh, uh, some of Simon and Garfunkel's stuff. But my approach, you know, I sort of just sort of felt like it had been a long time... And um, uh, one of the luxuries I had being in America was that I could spend a lot of time in New York City and traveling around the country and digging up a lot of information, you know, from people and archives and, you know, and all kinds of places, um, uh, you know, just from where they actually grew up, from where they're, you know, they were walking on the streets and and that, and the people were easy to come by. So, you know, a lot, whenever I write a book, I try to spend as much time as possible, turning over every rock I can find on the horizon. You, because you never know when something great's gonna come out. And there were a lot of revelations that I you know sort of came up with along the way. Yeah. Um and uh you know, and one of them for instance was that incredible early tape of Paul at the Brentwood Folk Club yeah. in like late nineteen sixty three that's in the county records office wow. over there in over there in in, in Essex. Yeah. Um you know and and among other things like at the uh uh at the folk uh, uh association library in london itself i mean they have an amazing amount of stuff um and it's it's just sort of a mystery. Why people don't write about Paul or hadn't really done mm. a big researched bio of him, is that he's very opposed to people writing his biography, um, including me. Um <laughs> Well there <laughs> is that uh, uh,
1: we'll jump right to the end of the book. There is that deliciously uncomfortable sort of epilogue to the book where you go yeah. to see him giving a talk about songwriting, I think it is, and he he stares you down, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He gives you the old scum <laughs> I eye. was
4: sitting there for the longest time. You know, it's amazing. People really sort of connected with that little moment in the mm. book, and it was something that I just wasn't even going to put in there until it just seemed to fit somehow. When I Oh, it's a great end ending. Right. Did he, he knew it was you, did he? Well, it seemed so. I knew he had to know that I was going to be there because I told his brother, who's his co-manager, mm. and the people that was, were working with him at uh, at Emory University were the ones who helped me you know get in to to see the lectures uh which had been sold out for some time but uh yeah so I went the first one I went to was this public conversation he was going to have with the poet uh Billy Collins over here mm-hmm. and um and I, I walked in it was in a, a in a church type space and um uh I took a seat in a pew about halfway back and there I got there early and there there were a lot you know not many people there at the time but by the time I finished digging stuff out of my bag I looked up and Paul was on stage and I and in the amount of time it took for me to register oh look Paul's on stage already I wonder like <laughs> why he's just sitting there he's looking around the pews and suddenly his eyes connected with mine and he just oh. stared at me <laughs> for what you know a, 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 an uncomfortably long period of time um and i was sitting there trying to figure out whether he was you know wh- is he staring at me is he not staring yeah, at me? He and, might, and, might have been doing uh, a
1: thousand yard stare you know a blank look into the thing but it, 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 it was he locked eyes with you did he peter
4: yeah, he kind of sort of did, you know, and I was sitting there looking back at him because I thought, well, the one thing, I know I'm not sure whether he's looking at me, but I'm not turning away, yeah, you know, like yeah. this is oh, this gosh. is some kind of like wild animals on the veld type of situation, <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> so, uh, and then ultimately, you know, after however much time it was, he put up his hand like in a flat kind of just palm out type of, like back off or go away or nothing to see here and then very pointedly turned away so um... so that was it you know i i had met him once very briefly at the during the rehearsals for the cape man at a press event uh... in the, you know in new york city mm-hmm. Uh, but that was just a quick handshake and a, oh, hi, nice to meet you. And
1: did you, I'm, I'm assuming, you, you know, you, you, you I, I imagine it's a courtesy when writing these books, even though you know the answer will be no, to get in touch, let him know you're writing it and ask if he'll do an interview.
4: Oh, of course. I mean, that's just the pro forma thing. But yeah. the other thing is, uh I you know, we had a lot of friends in common. I mean, particularly since I'd spent, you know, the previous few years writing that book about Bruce Springsteen and got to know the people in his circle yeah. very well and, and the people at Columbia uh, Records where they both, you know, where they both were working, you know, recording for at the time. And um or for a quite a while I should say. Uh and I thought like there was enough good buzz about me in those corners that if he checked in, you know, it would it would it would all be good. But um but he did and he did check in, uh, I know with John Landau, Bruce's manager. Mm. Uh and I think John said some nice things about me and then um still nothing you know and and he was extremely opposed to me the
1: the the impression i get from reading well it's it's not even an impression you pretty much state it he is a very very determined man um in all aspects of his life to the point where he doesn't he's not bothered about screwing someone over i mean there's the brilliant thing when (laughs) when um tom and jerry as, as simon and garfunkel were called when they were kids they have that kind of first hit um and behind Uh, art garfunkel's back paul simon goes and signs a solo contract as well doesn't he
4: yeah, but the amazing thing is that happened. But it happened even before the song was a hit. Oh, really? Before they had even recorded the final version, because it was on the initial contract or part of the initial contract that, or you know, or was an offshoot of it that he that he and his dad were negotiating with the record company owner Sid Prosen. Uh, you know, like weeks before they actually went in and recorded the finished version of the song. And so even before, you know, so it was like Tom and Jerry hadn't really gotten a chance to get off the ground yet before Paul was already sort of, you know, putting together a solo career. You know, <laughs> yeah. which, and, and, and
1: is-, is it right that 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 thing where he went bef- behind Artie's back? That was kind of the major bone of contention throughout their careers. We all know that Paul Simon and Garfunkel, you know, for a lot of the time, they didn't get on. But they were having rows about this in the 80s, even.
4: Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it was it was sort of the original sin in the Simon and Garfunkel relationship. And, you know, and if it weren't for that incident, there would have, you know, I'm certain there are enough other ones for them, you know, that they have... Uh, you know, uh, uh, collected against one another. Um, uh, you know, to probably you know it, 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 the same thing would have happened over something else. Yeah. that's what I'm trying to say. But yeah, no, Artie was still really upset about it in the '80s. And if you go back, I mean, and one of the things that broke up Paul or Simon and Garfunkel in the late '60s was when Artie secretly had a handshake deal with the the, the film director, Mike Nichols, to mm. star in the movie After Catch-22, which was called... Uh, Carnal uh, Knowledge, wasn't it? Yeah, Carnal yeah. Knowledge, thanks. Uh, Jack Nicholson was in that as well. Um, but so he shook hands on it and said, I don't want to, but let's keep it a secret for now. And, um, and then after they finished recording Bridge Over Troubled Water, Artie, like confess to Paul, said, I'm going to do this, like after this tour is over, I'm gone for mm. at least a year because I'm going to star in this movie I've already agreed to sign. And Paul was furious that Artie hadn't consulted him before coming up with his solo deal. But Artie, as you can imagine, was, it was like, you know, revenge served cold. Yeah. And, you know, well, it was that, like, okay, well, I'm going to start my own career without telling there's you There's that either, delicious you
1: know. bit, I, I don't know if it's in the late 80s, early 90s, where there's like a sort of theatrical show where the first half is Simon and Garfunkel, and the second half, uh-huh. i got this right, is him doing his solo kind of stuff. And, and they have a massive screaming match in, in the dressing right. room, where pretty much everyone in the theatre can hear them shouting at each other.
4: Yeah, well, I don't know about the theater, but definitely downstairs in the back area, you know, the large area where everyone's working and, you know, the band members are. It was after the show, and they, they screamed at each other so long and so violently that they had to cancel the next day's show.
2: they ruined their voices! <laughs>
4: yeah, they ruin their voices. You um, know,
1: so, uh... Paul Simon strikes me as jealous of Art Garfunkel because Art Garfunkel, this tall, you know, beautiful man with, uh, when he was younger, you know, this, this almost halo of hair and a voice to die for. And, you know, Paul Simon, yeah. short and stumpy and, and balding and, you know, a, a, an amazing talent, but physically and vocally in the shadow of Art Garfunkel. Was he jealous of his partner?
4: Oh uh, yeah, to I mean, for a lo- for a certain number of things. I mean, obviously, his height and his hair and his blue eyes and his sort of matinee idol looks. Um, but at the same time, Artie, of course, was having a lot of trouble because Paul was, you know, because he was envious of Paul's control yeah. over their career because he was the songwriter. And so to the, they needed, you know, Paul felt much more comfortable going on stage and trying to become a pop act with Artie by his side, because Artie was like, not only had that beautiful voice, but was also so great to look at. So when they did go their separate ways, I think, you know, Paul was definitely sort of crippled, but, you know, paralyzed for a while trying to figure out what to do next, because how could he possibly go on stage? and sing these songs, including Simon and Garfunkel songs, without Artie, you know, by his side to to add the, you know, the glow, you know, to add the extra beauty to the, mm. to the performance, you know. And so, um, uh, you know, so that was a big problem. But they were, you know, the, it, it's that thing that happens, and I think a lot of relationships where the thing that draws you to your partner is also the same thing that yeah. repulses you from them eventually.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um. uh, uh, Paul Paul Simon's career is so strange because he was one of the few kind of... Well, no, not one of the few, actually. I I retract that slightly. But, but, you know, huge in the 60s, pretty big Mm in the 70s. But then, of course you know when stratospheric in the mid 80s with with the graceland album an album that i don't actually like i think it's I, it this doesn't work for me but 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 went massively huge again and that must have been that must have fed his ego quite a bit to, to have a, a big smash like graceland
4: oh yeah well sort of the apotheosis of that era and i think of paul's solo career was after um, um, uh, "Rhythm of the Saints" came out in I think 1990, uh, and then he went on, or 91, and then he and then he went on tour, this huge solo tour, mm. which climaxed with another live concert in Central Park in New York, which is where you know, and, and literally uh, almost to the to the week, ten years earlier, Simon and Garfunkel had drawn a huge crowd. Uh, and and launched sort of their early '80s reunion, and so ten years later, Paul's here, and the place is even more jammed—at least according to the Park Service—and yeah. it's just him, you know. And and famously, he he didn't ask Artie to to sing any songs with him, and Artie was so hurt and infuriated by that that he left town and gave some bitter interviews about it. I think to his own disservice, but. Um, you know, and that was a beautiful moment. Yeah. Paula just released back to back you know insanely great albums. I actually do like no, i know I know i 'm in the
1: minority, I know i 'm in the minority I, I prefer and that's his- fine yeah
4: you don't have to you know everyone doesn 't have to agree on everything and so uh you know, but the one thing in your earlier statement, I think one thing that I think you 're underestimating is that he was huge in the seventies yeah i mean don 't forget you know i mean it was just I, cuz I, I was growing up at the, at that time listening to am radio certainly for the first half of the 70s and there was almost never a time when paul wasn't on the radio you're right i think I,
1: I think i meant in terms of comparative sales you know bridge over troubled water yeah, yeah, sold yeah, however yeah. many millions and his solo albums yeah, no, only sold yeah. a couple of million you or, you know yeah, yeah right what a come down yeah i know so isn't it? uh
4: you know, but he had a number. One, I mean, yeah, you're you're right about that. Um, but still, to me, it's like yeah. he was so omnipresent during the '70s. You know, and he was hosting Saturday Night Live and making a big hit with with those episodes. Writing his own stuff. You know, won a Grammy or excuse me, an Emmy for writing, co-writing his uh, his his special in 1977. Ch-
1: which, Chevy Chase in it, and uh, which is uh, yeah, I watched. It was all on YouTube. I watched all of that.
4: Um, yeah, yeah, and it's sort of a cool show yeah. and there's interesting stuff in it. I mean, nobody watched it, so that didn't work out. But you know, but right after that he had another two three back-to-back big hits with Slip Sliding Away and uh you know, the song that uh you know and and on and on. Um so, yeah, but He's you're right. Never... He had that m- he, massive moment in the mid-80s yeah. through the early 90s.
1: He's, um, he, he, his last two albums, I mean, albums don't sell these days, but the last two albums have been critically lauded. He's never really had a dud, apart from the Cape Man Broadway show, but then, retrospectively, the music is from that is still seen as brilliant, isn't it?
4: Oh, it is brilliant. Yeah, a lot of it is. I mean, that album that he put out where he does the songs uh Paul Simons I think sings songs from the cape you know songs from the cape man I think is what it's called is just jaw dropping I mean there's a two, three songs in there that kind of don't stick with me. They're more sort of narrative-driven mm. and, you know, and less kind of, you know. But the stuff he, he, he writes, these insanely great doo-wop songs and 50s rockers and all the way up through, you know, sort of, you know, Latin music of various types, bombas, and, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it's an incredible piece of work, mm. and it's, of course, produced and performed. You know, to, you know, to perfection.
1: Um, where are Simon and Garfunkel now? Do we know? Do we do we know if they're if, if they're still talking or, you know, I'm I'm aware that famously um, David Crosby and Graham Nash from Crosby Stills and Nash have had the mother of all fallouts, and they're saying I'm never working with that son of a bitch ever again. Do do, do we know where Simon and Garfunkel are with each other?
4: Pretty much there, at least publicly. I mean, I mean, I know that neither. Crosby or um, or Nash have ruled out. I guess Crosby stills Nash and mm. Young reunion, you know, which I think Neil wants to do too. Yeah. but with Paul and Artie, you know, they they toured together. They were just on the verge of, or had sort of started the early legs of a two year world tour in two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. Right around then, when Artie's voice developed that paralysis, mm. um, and he ended up. Uh, uh, not being able to do the tour. And then for a few years, it was still very sweet and loving between them in public. But then I don't know what would have happened, but suddenly, uh uh you know, and Paul was saying, well, whenever Artie's ready, I'm going to, you know, we're going to do it again. I'm like really looking forward to it. But God only knows what happened between them, because since it's about incredible. the mid-aughts on, they've just been at each other's throats again. And it, it's a wow. very, uh, it it's dismaying. Yeah. Um yeah.
1: I've got to say Peter, just going off on a slight tangent. You you've written one of my favorites. I'm I'm a huge Beach Boys fan and, and your book um Catch a Wave um it, it it was essential reading when it came out. How how did you find did you get to meet Brian?
4: Oh yeah, no, I worked with him very closely on that book yeah. actually. I had interviewed him before for a few years. Uh, I used to work at People magazine mm. and um and then I got to, he had a new record coming out, and so I got to go do a, a profile of him, and I met met him and got to hang out a little bit, and we all sort of hit it off. So then when I had other stories, you know, in magazines and, and newspapers over the next few years, uh, I worked with a man, and then when the book deal came through, they were like, great, come on, you know, whenever you need us, wow. we're here, you know. Yeah. And so I had incredible incre- access, and of course the thrilling thing was that was, when I was sort of at the height of my research was when he was at the height of relaunching Smile. Yeah. Wow, um, man. Yeah. So they were sort of in the middle of those sessions and, <laughs> you know, and I got to, you know, uh, see and, 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 you know, and, and, and witness a bunch of really, really cool things. I've so, I've,
1: been, I've been lucky enough to interview Brian, uh, I think three times and, and two of the times he was there and one of the times he wasn't there you know and i was I was speaking right. to robot brian you know but the, right. the, the first time i met him and i never thought i was going to meet him and he said to me hey man what's your favorite beach boy song and i said oh it's marcella he went really uh-huh. you like that song and then he just started singing it in front of me and suddenly yeah. i was 12 years old and my hair right. it was oh god so to, to have been in the position you were in peter um that must have just been amazing you must pinch yourself sometimes
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, totally. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, you sort of, when you're doing the work with them, you have to kind of put that sort of fanboy in yeah. the closet, you know, because you got to be a professional about it. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, there was a moment when I was doing the research for, for the Brian book, toward the very end of the process, he came through my, you know, I live in Portland, Oregon, and he mm. came through here with the Smile Tour. And I'd seen the show a few times before that, but of course, you know, I wanted to take my family. And mm. so my son... Who was then seven uh, came with us, and I had these all-access passes. Oh. So during the break, I said, "You want to go backstage?" So we, you know, we went backstage, and I was talking to the guys in the band who I know. And then, uh, you know, his wife, Brian's wife, said, "I heard her say, Brian, go say hi to Peter's son." <laughs> so, so he came up and kind of kneeled down in front of him, oh. and he said, oh. uh, "And this is after, you know, from the time I'm 13 years old, I ha- I was sort of one of those guys that." Mm-hmm really had a deep feeling for the lost album mm-hmm. mile, you know, mm-hmm. and what it would have happened. Oh, you know, I'm there all, you PC, all that yeah. mythology. Yeah. yeah. I was I was neck deep in that. And so but then many years later I sort of see it on a different level. But that person, that's that twelve year old you talked about, uh, was there very much when Brian came and, and kneeled down in front of my son and he said, uh, so what do you think so far? <laughs> and um Teddy said, um, oh, pretty good. And uh, he was a little, you know, struck. He didn't quite know what to say. And Brian goes, hmm, pretty good, huh? And then he said this thing that just made me shiver all over. He goes, well, wait till you hear smile. Oh, It'll knock your socks off.
1: Man alive. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that yeah. beautiful?
4: And I was there, you know, sort of watching it from every angle at the same time, all the different mm-hmm. versions of Beach Boy fans mm-hmm. and Brian, yeah. you know, uh, being a sort of a student of Brian's work and his, his life and, you know, and, and knowing him a bit and being friendly with him at just the whole, you know, after all those years of Smile being this kind of terrible... You know, I mean, it was a great myth. He could have lived on that myth forever. Oh, yeah, sure. But the fact that he had the strength to, after nearly 40 years, say, you know what? Let's finish it. And to actually finish it and have it work and take it around the world and as a performance piece. You know, when Brian had so many bugaboos about that album mm. for so long was just an amazing, I thought, story such a beautiful story of of redemption, you know.
1: Peter, I'm going to let you go in a second, I promise, I promise, but I'm I'm having a real fan. Can I ask you, do you you know if this story is true? In the 1979, 80, whenever it was, and the Beach Boys have signed to, I think it's Warner Brothers, and they deliver their first album, which was the Mm -hmm. Light album, and they play it for the head of the record company, and the head of the record company listens, and as the needle lifts off of the second side, he turns around and says, ladies and gentlemen, I think we've just been effed. Is that True story. Yeah, that's right.
4: Oh. <laughs> You're right? No, actually, that was went right after they signed with Columbia. Columbia in so 1978 Columbia. or seventy-nine. Yeah, they they were on Warner's during the seventies. That was it. Yeah, and jumped over to CBS Columbia for uh, the eighties. Um, again, again. Anyway, go on yeah. And so, because it was, it's kind of you know, I mean, L.A. actually turned out to be a, a decent surprise. I loved it. Record. I think
1: it's a great record.
4: Yeah. So, but but there's a lot of stuff on there, and, uh, you know, that when you listen to it, you can imagine, like, he, you know, yeah. Walter Yetnikoff, who was the president of Columbia at the time, is sitting there and he's expecting a great Beach Boys, brilliant Beach Boys record with Brian Wilson front and center, and they yeah. get that record, and... Yeah. The, the outtakes from it are pretty excruciating yeah oh yeah and so yeah but,
2: Angel but they come said home, after baby, that Bloom. everyone
4: was all shocked and furious but then after that he, the the word was they had a very productive and good meeting and and the album they eventually turned in was was you know as i said quite good i so. think
1: it's great i, I even love the 12 minute disco song uh, peter what's next yeah. well, have you got have you got another project that you're you're working on already or do you, do you just kind of wait to see where the mood takes you
4: I've got actually a few things in the works that I can't talk about yet. Beautiful. But uh, usually I only kind of work on one book at a time. Yeah. But now somehow I've like had a productive, uh, you know, dreaming phase. So now I've got like three different projects I'm pretty excited about. We'll just have to figure out which one I start with and, and how it all comes down.
1: Mate, as soon as they're done, you, you have an open invitation to come and come and um, chat, as long as you don't mind me geeking out about the Beach Boys. The, the, the book is brilliant, Homeward Bound. Uh, the Life of Paul Simon, uh, Peter James Carlin. I'm going to tweet the link. Uh, everyone, it, it really is... I, I read it on my week off, and it, I, I just couldn't put it down. Between, but I, I kept sw- switching, Peter, between reading your book and watching the OJ documentary, so um,
4: <laughs> it, was, it was a <laughs> busy company. week. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been a real pleasure. Hey, my pleasure too, man. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Peter Ames Carlin, Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon. It is such a joy. Quite often you get these biographies and you, you, there's no passion in them. This is just a wonderful, wonderful book. And, and while you're there, go and buy Catch a Wave, The Rise, Fall and Redemption of the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson. It's, it's a bit older, but it's, it really is a great, great read. In fact, you know what? I'm going to dig that out this weekend and crack that open again. Oh, 03444991000. Four, Late nights with Ian Lee on Talk Radio.
0: Late nights, Ian Lee on air and off the on Talk Radio. We have ways of making you talk.
1: Honestly, I've I've just tweeted the link. Type in Paul Simon and 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 it's on Amazon or wherever you get your books. If you go to you go to a bookstore, you you know, and um, it's it's such a joy. And the fact that in the nineties they were still arguing. About a deal Paul Simon cut behind Art Garfunkel's back in 1957. (laughs) They were kids, literally they were like, I think they're about 15 years old. It is incredible such a good book and what an, what a fascinating gentleman i love that we'll get peter on again we'll find we'll find an excuse to get him on again we've got his phone number he's going nowhere um it's friday um it's 10:33 take your rage our diaries now late nights with ian lee on talk radio we've had um a, a strange kind of uh week really it's a bit, a bit um existential but esoteric um so tonight, you can call in with what, whatever you fancy, really. I've not been through the papers. I've not looked through the papers. So I, I don't know what's going on. Everyone's got themselves in a... Got their knickers in a twist because of George Osborne getting a job. I mean... Yeah, really? I don't think anyone cares, do they? Apart from journalists. Journalists seem to be the only people that care about that story. I couldn't give them monkeys. Um, so... I don't have anything, which some of you, <laughs> sometimes I get emails and tweets from people say, or, 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 saying, um, you lazy git, do a bit of, do a bit of work. Well, I read that Paul Simon book. That took me three days. I did three days work. Um, do a bit of prep. Ah, wow. prep so dull. Please miss. I haven't done my homework. Can we just sit and talk? Yeah, we'll do that instead. Um, if you're a new listener and thank you, thank you, thank you. We're getting so many new listeners every night, every week. We're getting more and more listeners. I know because you email me and uh, you tweet me. Thank you. Um, the way this works is I will sit here and I will, you know, kind of spew stuff out of my head. Um, and you're more than welcome to call in about any of the words that fall out of my mouth or you can call in about anything you fancy yourself. Even George Osborne, if you want to talk about that. I I mean, it really is. Anything goes. We did yesterday, thanks to some callers, we did um start nudging towards we didn't start nudging. We we, we ran up and licked conspiracy theories a little bit. And I'm always I'm always happy to take your calls on conspiracy theories. I, when it comes to those things, I tend to be um, quite straight-laced. I generally buy the um, the official line on things. Generally, I do. I, I do think... Princess Diana was killed because she was being driven by a drunk person who was going too fast, and they weren't wearing seatbelts. That's what I think. I do think that nine eleven was a bunch of Saudi terrorists who'd put in two years of training to fly planes, and then they went and hijacked planes. I do think that that's that, and the buildings collapsed because they were hit by two massive jumbos. That's what I think. Um Of course we landed on the moon. Why would they fake the moon landings? I mean, we've really gone uh, above and beyond this week, I suppose, actually, with the the flat earth and the hollow earth. So I'm I'm really happy for um, you to call in if you have got theories or ideas that are outside of the norm. And I hope if you have been listening this week... You have heard me speaking to a gentleman who thinks the earth is hollow and that Nazis live in there. Um, A a gentleman who believes that before he was born, he was given the choice of either coming to this planet or a purple plant-based planet, and he chose this one because he liked the colour. And um, the, the guy who phoned in about Princess Diana. I hope you think I've given them, as I would give you, if you were to call in, a fair crack of the whip. I've challenged them because that is only... Right, I think. Actually, I didn't challenge the Hollow Earth guy. I felt sorry for him. Um, but I, I, I'm not, it, it's not one of those shows where I'm going to laugh at you and take the mick. Uh, you, you'll get a fair hearing and I'll question it. But it's not one of those shows where we, you know, but people do think this show is cruel. A woman, um, do you remember yesterday, last night's show? Ian, Jay and Alan, I'll come to you in a bit. 03444991000. Last night's show, we had a caller called Mark. And, um, it was a nice little clip and it, we, we, we posted it online. A, a, a young lady said, no wonder you don't get any calls anymore. Fake news. We do we got a load of calls last night. No wonder you don't get calls anymore. Do you think it's funny to ignore? your callers. And I replied to her about two o'clock in the morning. I deleted it instantly because I thought, "I'm, I'm trying not to reply to people on Twitter. But my reply was, we do get callers. And I didn't ignore Mark at all. If you were listening, I was giving him a verbal cue to start speaking. It's kind of an accepted cue to say someone's name. Mark. It's slightly easier if they're there because you can indicate with your hand. Mark. Um, Mark. I I was giving him a cue to speak. I was never talking over him. I was only speaking in between what he said. So I don't think it was cruel or, or mean... Or, or even ignoring. I did think it was funny. Yeah, I thought it was funny. But, um... So, so... What's the point I'm trying to make? There is no point. None of this matters. But some people will hear... Um, Mr Ethical, for example, is another gentleman. They will hear a mean show. And um this isn't a mean show at all. Au contraire. This is... A um a very warm, open show. It's a drop-in centre for the lost and befuddled. I like to describe it as... And everyone gets a fair crack of the whip. And I will challenge a, a 43-year-old man as much as I would challenge a 12-year-old girl as much as I would challenge a 92-year-old man. Everyone gets equal treatment here. And some people think, oh, he's an old man. Shouldn't be questioned. Oh, it's a kid's. Oh, it's a disabled person. You should. You were a bit harsh on them. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Everyone gets treated the same on this show. Whatever their age, their physical or mental um, capabilities, they, they will be treated as, an, as, as, as a responsible person who is able to um, engage in a conversation. Um, with that in mind, I open the phone lines to you. I've got three calls lined up already, and we'll get to those uh, after these s- sets of ads. Um, but you're welcome to call in. Um, if any of what I've just said has made sense, well, then there's probably something wrong with you, because I'm just rambling. I don't know what I'm saying. The way it works is you dial us up, we take your details, we call you back. The phone number is 0344 499. 1,000. 499 4, 4, 1,000. You're listening to Tick Your Rage Our Diaries now. Late Nights with Ian Lee on Talk Radio.
2: Late Nights, Ian
1: Lee on Talk Radio. We'll get you talking. Right, let's crack on with the calls, shall we? Let's go to Ian first. Evening, Ian. Hi, Ian. Hi, hey. again. Right, yeah, alright. What have you got for us? Come on. Um, well, The other day,
5: he uh, um about there's no uh, characters with narcolepsy in like, shows.
1: I, I did put forward that hypothesis that yeah. the narcoleptics were woefully underrepresented in popular culture, yes. Right, well, well, this one what I need help with.
5: It like, a long time ago, it was either um, Biker Grove or Grange Hill, and there was a character, and he had narcolepsy, and he was hiding it um, from people, oh. and there was a scene I remember where he fell asleep in the toilet, that's all I can remember.
1: Um, that rings of that rings a very tiny distant bell. It wasn't um that kid that died in in the teacher's car, was it? In Grange Hill, I can't I can't remember. remember it was, da- um... Danny, 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 somebody died. Danny Kendall didn't he die in a teacher's car? I'm not sure. Um, I think the only dates I
5: could put it between would be like, uh, 98 to, I don't know,
1: 2002. Oh, no, like. that's Danny Kendall was way before that. 98? Oh, right. I was, um, 25. <laughs> I wasn't watching, well, I probably was watching. Well, yeah, cinema. I'm just saying so it might ring, like, a bell in someone. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll put it out there. There's We, we think yeah. there may have been a narcoleptic in either Grange Hill or Biker Grove just uh, at the end of the last century. Yeah. <laughs> nice one, Ian. All right. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Let's go to Jay. Evening, Jay. Good evening. Oh, no, hang on. Sorry, Jay. Hang on. Oh, hang on a minute. Uh, Jay, sorry, I, I pressed the wrong button. Yes, boss.
6: Oh, that's all right. How are you doing, mate? I'm all right. I have binged tonight. On what? I've binged on beer and whiskey and pizza and Ian Lee podcasts. Oh, God. I've listened to every single one from this week in one fell swoop.
1: Ooh, that's going to rot to your brain.
6: I think I'm losing my mind.
1: Yes, mate. Firstly,
6: mate, it's great to have you back. Yes. I have very much enjoyed... All of the output I've just binged on.
1: Well done. I had to I had to make a political stance last week. And um, l- let's just say, <laughs> let's just say James O'Brien won an award this week. Uh, thank you. Oh. I thank you. Good radio. Good radio has been rewarded partly because of the pressure that the strike put on the uh, award yeah. organisers.
6: I joined on the strike. I only listened to, uh, I didn't listen to any talk-based radio. Was that okay? Was that enough?
1: Well, you, so you scabbed a bit. I
6: scabbed on music radio. Well, but- um, and I scabbed on podcasts of radio
1: shows. Podcasts are called. Cool. The, 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 hey, hey, listen, I'm not going to fall out. With, I'm not going to do what they did to um, um, the the fella in Brookside when he scabbed, <laughs> and they um, they drove. He, he went mad because he scabbed, and so he drove his car round and round the garden. And, uh, like a teddy bear. And he ripped up the garden. I'm not, I'm not gonna... Billy Corkill, that was it. I'm not gonna... <laughs> that, is, that was Billy Corkill. That is a reference before my time, mate. I'm sorry. Shut up, man. What are you talking <laughs> Billy corkle is, is of our time. He is, um, well, I don't know. Well, are you gonna guess my age then? Because you're good at that. No, nope, I only do it... Are you 28?
6: Um, you're, you're way off your usual margin of error. Well, go on. I'm
1: 35. Well, hang on a minute. That bullshine, then, because you just said that you were what? young. I would have said 36. No, I'm sorry. I, I said... I, I mean, you got to that now. No, I said I was too young for Brookside. No, you're not too... You're 30. No, Jay, you have given fake... Hashtag fake news. 36 <laughs> is not too young for Brookside. What the hell are no, you talking
6: about? When was that Jimmy Corker? I was probably, like, 84. I think you said you
1: were too young for Brookside! So I instantly, right. completely... First of all, I only ever call out people's ages when I'm confident of them, right? So when people right, say, okay. go on, what's my age? I can never get it. But I would yeah, have said okay. 36. But I, I undercut myself because you said you were too young for Brookside, making no, me I, think I, making I, me think that you grew up yeah. in a post-Brookside uh, world. You didn't! You were not remember, too young for I Brookside! Remember,
6: I, the only thing I remember
1: Jeez. from Brookside was the, um, oh, yes, no. the, the, the the dodgy relationship with uh, Beth Watson. Oh, hang on a minute, mate. Sorry, so you remember something from Brookside, a program that you were too young for? I said I was too young for the. But you, no, record. you didn't. No, you didn't. You said mm. you were too young for Brookside, right? So yes. instantly, I'm shaving. I'm shaving ten years off your age, and then you go. Oh yeah, but yeah. I, but I remember, I I remember, um, I remember bits of Brookside. Oh, so yeah. you tail end. weren't too I young. I
6: remember tail end. I do
1: tail end, I do. Unbelievable. Anyway, yeah, you, I, Kath, you you put this bloke through, did you? And I am have a word with you after the show because he should not have got through. This guy should not I, be on the air.
6: I'm sorry, I didn't mean to put it in the back foot. Can I talk about what I wanted to talk about?
1: <laughs> Please do, Jay. That would be greatly appreciated. I, Come on.
6: I want to know where I can get hold of some tramadol.
1: Oh, no, no, don't know. That stuff no, seems don't. like a lot of fun. No, 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 don't. It, 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 and I have to say this because my bosses <laughs> will tell me off and I, someone will complain. Um, you, uh, you don't tra- only use tramadol if it is prescribed to you by a physician. What, Follow the what, correct dosage. And um, what and, on
6: earth happened on Wednesday? It was dynamite listening, but what on? I've never heard such concentrated claptrap. From the entire show, I mean, it was it was it was intense.
1: <laughs> it felt Seriously like to intense. me. You're probably too young to remember this. It felt like a proper phoning show from the late 90s. You you uh, probably weren't born then.
6: It, well, I didn't listen to it radio. Well, of course, but, you didn't. Um, but, um, I, but I, I, now you're going to go and
1: either. quote some some bits from then, aren't you? Yeah.
6: But um, no, it was I, I, even people who previously I thought were solid. You know, Martin Sweetheart and and, and oh, you and, did and not counselor.
1: think Martin Sweetheart was solid.
6: He was—he was lovely, and then he went crazy. He went—no, don't use the word crazy, but he—he he went um, peculiar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was great listening, and and they seem like very like I mean, uh, you know, likable people. But oh yeah. my goodness, the things they were talking about! I mean, you know, you said you were worried about being too harsh on people. I think you go
1: too easy on some of people. Oh no, I tell you why! I tell you why I'm 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 doing that. I'm I'm experimenting. I'm changing your image, yeah. darlings. I'm experimenting with just easing off the throttle. Quite in fact, I'm, I'm experimenting with parking the car in a lay-by at the moment because I quite yeah. like because the, the show you're talking about Wednesday, right? I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything, and it was one of the best shows that I've ever done. It was Um, great. uh, I I I I I
6: pulled out chunks of my hair. It
1: was great. I pulled out chunks of my hair. No, yeah, you say, and that's and that's because that's because I, I eased off the accelerator. <laughs> Jay, listen, thank you very much indeed. Tramadol is a very, very naughty drug. Very, but only use it if it is prescribed. L- LBC were doing a massive advert for Spice today. I think they thought it was an anti-Spice feature, but it, honestly, I was listening to it as I was out walking the dog. They did a tw- twenty-minute thing about Spice, this drug, right? And I'm texting my mate going, Are you listening to this? It's enough sound good. Honestly. And then they. And, and I'm, and I'm, this is really odd, right? So there's a reporter talking to O'Brien, right? And the reporter then named a specific alleyway off of a specific street near Leicester Square, right? And he said, Do you know that, that alleyway? And James said, Oh yeah, I walk past it every day, named it so we could locate it. He said, Right. Have you noticed that there's always a queue of people there? He said, yeah, yeah, what's the queue for? He said, right, at the end of the alleyway, there's a phone number on the wall, and you phone up that number, and um, uh, someone will come and meet you on a Boris bike and deliver you spice. And James said, oh, that's interesting. And they broadcast that the, the exact... Loca- I'm, I'm being deliberately vague because I'm a professional they broadcast the exact location to go and find a phone number to get this uh, this drug delivered to you and I'm thinking someone's going to someone's going to say something in a minute someone's going to apologize or 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 say don't go and do that or no they didn't they left it at that <sighs> Don't do drugs, kids. Don't do drugs, is, is my advice. But why would you listen to an old fart? Abraham! Hello. Hello, Abraham. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. What you got for us?
5: Um, You know, when you're talking about conspiracy theories, yes. I've got one. Go on. Um, everyone that's got a mobile phone, they're walking around with a bugging device. It's got audio, it's got cameras, and the government can switch it on and listen to what you're talking about and and watch what you're doing at any
1: time. Um, there was a story in the papers last week that the you know those Fitbit, those little black wristbands you see, um, yeah, yeah. idiots, wearing, that spies can can hack into your Fitbit. I don't know why. They yeah, but they don't need to do that. They could, they could tap into your phone. Right. Yeah. It, it's all, it's only an app. But well, really. but yeah, but but do you think the government is actually doing that?
5: I think. Uh... The government could, could pinpoint, uh, you know, targets that they want to do that to, Yes.
1: So you think that they're uh, doing it?
5: I don't think they're doing it to me. <laughs> no,
1: well, here's, here's the thing, right? I'm going to say something, and I don't mean this to be offensive, okay? Yeah. How come we haven't had a major terrorist atrocity in this country for quite a long time? I'm thinking of um, of uh, uh, the Bataclan. I'm thinking of uh, the the other attacks that they had in Paris. That the, the, There's all the... Why have we not had one in this country that I can think of? Obviously, there was Lee Rigby, but I'm thinking of yes. a big, you know, kind of explosion. The, the, the only one we had was 7-7. The only one. The, the, the last one... We is it because our intelligence services are so bang on the money yes. that they are, they are spotting these things before they happen? Yeah, we probably don't, don't hear about that. Well, half yeah. of the well is, it, half is it, is it that? Is it because the ISIS agents in this country are idiots or is it because, and here's a conspiracy theory that I'm happy to explore. Yeah. The threat is minute. ISIS is not the, um, is not the all powerful, um, evil that we've been told it is and that there is no threat, but they're using the threat of ISIS, they, the government, to keep us living in fear.
5: I agree with that.
1: Well, I'm not saying that's definitely yeah. the case, but I'm I'm, I'm saying that, that that is a possibility. Do you not think it's odd we've not had, you know, a bomb going off on a train or, you know, a, a couple of idiots with machine guns at a, a Whiteley shopping centre or something? Do you know what I mean?
5: Yeah. Well, putting the people at, at fear, um, makes them, uh, legitimately able to put more cameras out yeah. there, more security out there, more police force out there, more control. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, Abraham, listen. Thank you for that, Alan. We're going to come to you after the news to give you a fair crack of the whip. Um, I don't know where you've sent it, Catherine, but it's certainly not to my email address. Um, do you know what I mean? It really does strike me. Uh, um, Catherine's saying that the, the top cops reckon they've foiled thirteen attacks since Lee Rigby. Oh. Ha- okay, have they though? Have they? I don't know. This, I, I, I'm not, you know, saying this as fact. I'm not saying this to. You know, make light of those, those, those horrific events. Of course not. But, um, is it because our intelligence services are bang on the money? Bang, completely inappropriate word. Or is it because there is no threat? 0344 1000 late nights with Ian Lee on talk radio. Talk radio. <laughs> Biffo the Bears listening to a different radio show. Oh, <laughs> God almighty. <laughs> Oh, dear.
2: Late night, Ian Lee on Talk Radio.
0: We have ways of making you talk. Such a good bit of music.
1: And I think I might be the only person that likes the original Casino Royale movie. It's a mess. Five directors. The directors all kept leaving. They kept leaving, partly because... Partly because they said they couldn't work with Peter Sellers. (laughs) Five directors! And it looks like it. It looks like five different movies just stuck together. And how many Bonds are in it? I think there are... um, There's David Niven. Is Peter Sellers Bond in it? Woody Allen is Jimmy Bond. Um, Is there a fourth? There's a fourth, I think. Biffo um, is unhappy with me. I don't know what show Biffo is listening to, but um, I suggest your IQ is not up to scratch for this one. Biffo says... Ian Lee gives great radio, but his politics let him down. Dismissing Lee Rigby and 7-7. Don't mix the two. It doesn't work. I, I, I... I'm sure I went to pains to say at least two or three times. Um I'm not being dismissive of those horrific- I, I, I'm sure. I, I, I I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go and listen to talk sport. I think that's more suited at your level. Well done. Good luck. Good luck. Fingers crossed, we're working on the mighty Herb Alpert coming on this show. Oh, and who's doing a tour of the UK later in the year? Mr Neil Sedaka. Let's get Neil Sedaka on this show. Uh-huh. What we'll do, here's what we'll do. We'll go and meet Neil Sedaka and we'll take a little tiny Bon Tempe and we'll get him to play his songs on a bontempi. That's what we're going to do. I'm tempted to uh, watch the Casino Royale. It really is a mess. Five directors, they just kept leaving, saying, ah, I can't do this, can't work with this. But I remember watching it as a kid and loving it. There's a brilliant gag with Bernard Cribbins, who's also coming on the show soon, hopefully, where he drives um, a taxi from London to India or something, doesn't he? Beautiful, beautiful mess. There's a real interesting... um, I've, I've got... A friend, and I, I use the term friend loosely. No, I don't, because I was going to say because I've only met him twice, briefly. But actually, friends, friendship these days can be entirely digital. It's, it's a legitimate form, and I, I, we communicate um, on various Twitter feeds. And, and, and he's a music nerd like me, but he, a bloke called Andrew Hickey. He's a brilliant writer as well. He self-publishes um, or crowdfunds. Um, books about the Beach Boys and about the monkeys and things, and they're, they're brilliant, absolutely brilliant. i tell you why they're brilliant, because I quite often I disagree with him a lot, and I love having, you know, argue. I love reading his books going, well, that's wrong. Well, it's, that song's brilliant. What's the idiot talking about? I love it. I love it. And he's a great writer, and I follow him on Twitter, and he's, he, he, he's, um, he's really good, but he, he he's thinking of writing a blog, and I do think he should, about a very specific sub-genre of, of movies. In the mid to late 60s, there were a series of, of of British surrealist movies. Casino Royale, I think, just about fits into that. There's a brilliant film written by Spike Milligan called The Bed-Sitting Room. Oh, it's it's great. Peter Cook and Dudley Moore are in it. I think Harry Seacombs in it. It's about um, Britain after it's been wiped out by a nuclear holocaust, oh, and it's funny, and one of the characters, it's surreal, one of the characters, and I can't remember how or why, but turns into a bedsit, literally turns into a bedsit, it's the weirdest thing, I haven't seen it for a while, I, I, I got it on a a, a bootleg copy, but you can get it officially now. My sister bought it for me for birth. I, I need to watch it again because it's just marvelous. Other, um, uh, uh, surreal films, The Magic Christian, which we've talked about a lot on this show. Um, there's a great one starring. Here's a, here's a pairing. Michael Crawford and John Lennon called How I Won the War. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. And it, it, it's who's in it? Every, everybody's in it. They're all the same people are in these films. It's Michael Crawford. John Lennon. Please, sir, my feet sweat, sir. Um, Roy Kinnear. Um, the bloke who did, um, Michael. Who's the bloke who did the voice of Paddington? There. Uh, Michael, Michael, um, 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 Bond. No, no, no. The guy who, does, who reads it. Maybe he wasn't called Michael. You know the guy, the old guy. Um, um, Lance Percival probably pops up in it at some point. Um, and it's brilliant. It's about the most inept army troop being sent to war. And they all get killed apart from Michael Crawford, who's an upper class twit and he survives. Michael Horden. Thank you, Catherine. And it's, oh, it's wonderful. And I love it. And when they die, they come, they, they, the character is still there, but they're painted like blue or green or yellow. Oh, it's a great film. It, it really is. It, 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 it's, it, lots of silences in it. Wonderful, wonderful silences. And uh, why am I talking about that? I don't know. Just seemed like a nice thing. Oh, Bedazzled, of course, the, the Peter Cook and Dudley Moore film, which is just, have you seen Bedazzled, cast Oh, it's, it's so good. It's so, it's just beautiful. Um, and Eleanor Braun in it, uh, her, her most stunning and, and, and Peter Cook is his most slimy and Dudley Moore is most dumb. It's just wonderful. Um, I don't know why I'm talking about that. That's the kind of show. I'll start talking about something and, and, and end up talking about how, um, beautiful I think Eleanor Braun is. Kids, you still listening? <laughs> Um, you can watch the show tonight on Periscope. We've been on Periscope all week. We'll probably be on Periscope all of next week. I do Periscope when I'm feeling OK. When I'm feeling lousy, we don't do Periscope. But if you go to periscope.tv slash Ian Lee, i a it'll pop up. And during the adverts, I might sing you some songs on my ukulele. 03, let's crack on with the show, Lee. Enough of this bullshine, for goodness sakes. 0344 499 1000 is the telephone number. Alan! Has he fallen asleep again, Alan? Okay, there we go. <laughs> I'm I'm making up. There's a tension between myself and Alan. There's a, the, 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 I don't know if it's a sense of entitlement. Um, it, I don't know, but um, I don't know what's going on. Well, that leaves us uh, at a crossroads. Dear listener, as, um, because Alan's fallen asleep and I've been wittering on so much. We have no phone calls. Yes, we have no phone calls, dear listener. Um, so, um, and I haven't looked in the newspapers. So we potentially have nothing. <clears throat> potentially have nothing. We might have something. Well, I've literally got nothing else to do, okay? I don't have any phone calls. I don't have any stories in the newspapers. (coughs) (coughs) So, I'll read, I'll read, I'll read. I I might as well, I've got nothing else. If you want to call in, you're more than welcome to 0344 499 One of the great joys of, um, um, at least angle the light ever so slightly so I can read what I'm saying. One of the great joys of, um, of Amazon is you can buy books for a penny. Yes, you have to pay £2.80 postage, and that always, um, that always gets me every single time. But you can buy books for a penny, um, and I bought this book. I think I bought it before, just before he died. The uh, Gene Wilder autobiography. Um, I say the Gene Wilder, the autobiography. I think he may have written a few more books. I'm not totally sure. Kiss Me Like a Stranger. Um, <clears throat> so I can sit here and, um, read if you'd like. I have nothing else. Blank sheet of paper. No newspapers. No calls. So we'll do it then, shall we? Kiss Me Like a Stranger, Gene Wilder, The Autobiography. When was this written? Um, Published in 2006. Well, the paperback was, so maybe the hardback. 2005. Okay. To Karen, without whom I would be floating like a cork in the ocean. Isn't that a nice dedication? Kiss me like a stranger. Prologue. I won't do the voice. Suppose you're walking out of the Plaza Hotel in New York City on a warm spring day. You breathe in the lovely fresh air as you step outside and walk down the red carpeted stairs, saying a quick... Hi again to the uniformed doorman. You want to go directly across the street to Bergdorf's men's shop on 5th Avenue, but the Plaza Fountain is directly in your path, with people from all walks of life sitting on the ledge of the fountain, eating sandwiches in what's left of their lunch hour, talking to their friends from the office, maybe flirting with some new acquaintance, and whispering arrangements for a love tryst that night. Gosh, you feel you feel like you're there. What a brilliant descriptive opening two paragraphs, perhaps some are taking a short sunbath. I've never heard it called that before. Isn't that lovely? Did you hear that a sunbath isn't that? I've never of course sunbathing it's a sunbath. I've never heard that phrase before. Boom, I'm in a penny well spent. Perhaps some are taking a short sunbath on this first beautiful day of the year, or even sneaking in a quick snooze as they lean their backs against the famous fountain where Zelda Fitzgerald once jumped in fully clothed. You can get to the shop on Fifth Avenue by walking around the fountain on the path to your left, or by taking the path to your right. I believe that whichever choice you make could change your life. I'm sure everyone has had these mysterious brushes with irony, perhaps referring to them years later as almost fate. Here are a few of mine. Chapter 1. 1962. New York. I walked into Marjorie Wallace's small office on West 79th Street. I was very nervous. What do I call you? I asked. What do you want to call me? I heard Dr Steiner call you Margie on the telephone. Is that all right? Margie it is. Sit down. She indicated the plain couch in front of me. There were no pictures on the walls. Margie sat in a comfortable-looking armchair with an ottoman, which she wasn't using, resting in front of her. Her face wasn't warm, but it wasn't stern either. What seems to be the trouble, she asked. I couldn't bring myself to look at her. I want to give all my money away. How much do you have? I owe $300. She looked at me silently for four or five seconds. I see. Well, let's get to work, and maybe by the time you have some money, you'll be wise enough to know what to do with it. In the meantime, tell me about... And then she asked me a lot of questions. Your mother was how old? How did you feel when the doctor said that? Have you ever tried to blah, blah, blah? I took so many long pauses before I answered each question that I thought she might throw me out, but she just sat there with her feet up on the ottoman now and waited. When I did start talking again, she made little notes on a small pad that rested on her lap. What I couldn't understand was this. Why on earth was I thinking about a 15-year-old girl named Seema Clark during all my long pauses in between Margie's questions? Seema kept popping into my head while I was talking about my mother and doctors and heart attacks and my Russian father and masturbation. I thought Seema was Eurasian when I met her the first time. She certainly didn't look Jewish. But when we both came out of the synagogue together, I realised that she must be Jewish. She was the most beautiful girl I had ever seen. I was only 15, but I'd seen a lot of movies and I thought she looked like a very thin teenage Rita Hayworth. I was her date when Seema had her 15th birthday party. There were eight or ten other kids at her house that night, all laughing their heads off at some Weisenheimer who was hypnotising one of the girls. I thought he was pretty stupid, but I enjoyed watching the cocky little faker who thought he knew how to hypnotise people because he'd read his uncle's book on hypnosis. Seema held my hand while we watched the hypnotist go through his fake talk. I knew she really liked me. She looked so pretty that night, with a pink berette in her hair and wearing a brand-new yellow angora sweater. Her mother served all of us birthday cake and some delicious coffee. When all the other kids had gone home, Mrs. Clark showed me the coffee can because I had said how good the coffee tasted. It was AMP's 8 o'clock coffee. And then her mother said good night and left Seema and me alone. We sat on the couch in an almost dark living room and started kissing. I was shy, but I didn't want Seema to know how shy I really was. So I put on an act as if I were used to all this kissing in the dark with no one around. I thought that she was probably more experienced than I was, and I decided that it was about time for me to feel a girl's breast. Well, I can't say I decided. I was just going on what I'd heard from all the other boys my age, especially my cousin Buddy, who was nine months older than me. It took me about eight minutes to get my hand near the start of Seema's breast. The hairs of her new angora sweater kept coming off in my fingers, which certainly didn't help any. After another three or four minutes I finally put my hand on about one-third of her breast. As soon as I did she jerked away. My mouth went dry. She looked at me with such disappointment in her eyes and said, "'You're just like all the other boys, aren't you?' I flushed so hot I thought I'd burst." I couldn't understand why she didn't say anything during all the kissing and creeping up the fake Angora. Why didn't she just say no, or I don't want you to do that, or anything but what she did say? I wanted to tell her that I wasn't at all like all the other boys, that I thought she would like what I was doing, that I thought she was waiting for me to do it. But I was too embarrassed to say any of those things. I just said, I'm sorry Seema, and then wished her happy birthday and got out of there as fast as I could. Of course, this all happened in little pictures that popped into my head during the long pauses with Margie. The whole memory probably lasted only a few seconds. Margie's voice suddenly burst in. "'Where are you?' "'What do you mean?' "'Lie down on the couch. You're not as innocent as you pretend, and Dr Steiner assures me that you're no dummy. I want you to start talking and tell me everything that crosses your mind. Everything.' however embarrassing or insignificant you think it is i don't know whether or not i can help you and i don't know how many times you and i'll be seeing each other in the future but whether it's one time more or several years don't ever lie to me that's the end of chapter one
3: Late Night, Ian Lee,
1: on Talk
0: Radio. We have ways of making you talk.
1: Um, we've got some calls, um, Dan and John and, and Mark and Dredge, but would you indulge me for a few more minutes, because I'm actually getting quite into this. Uh, I, I, I will come to you in a minute, I promise. Uh, I just want to see where Chapter 2 takes us. Chapter 2. Um, if you just tuned in, I'm reading the, uh, Gene Wilder Autobiography, Kiss Me Like a Stranger, from about 2005. Chapter 2. Can a few words change your life? Milwaukee. I used to be Jerry Silberman. When I was eight years old, my mother had a first heart attack. After my father brought her home from the hospital, her fat heart specialist came to see how she was doing. He visited with her for about ten minutes, and then on his way out of the house, he grabbed my right arm, leaned his sweaty face against my cheek, and whispered in my ear, ''Don't ever argue with your mother. You might kill her.'' I didn't know what to make of that, except that I could kill my mother if I got angry with her. The other thing he said was, ''Try to make her laugh.'' So I tried. It was the first time I ever consciously tried to make someone laugh. I did Jewish accents and German accents and Danny Kaye songs that I learnt from his first album. And I did make my mother laugh. Every once in a while, if I was a little too successful, she'd run to the bathroom squealing, ''Oh, Jerry, now look what you've made me do!'' Some people, when they step into the ring, lead with their left, some lead with their right. I always led with my sister, It was a Saturday night. I was eleven. My sister, Corinne, was sixteen, and she was giving an acting recital at the Wisconsin College of Music, where her teacher, Herman Gottlieb, had his studio. It was a small auditorium, stuffed with about two hundred people. While everyone sat and waited for the show to start, there was so much loud talking that I wondered how Corinne would stand it. When the lights started to fade, everyone talked louder for a few seconds. Then they all whispered. Then, darkness. A spotlight hit the centre of the stage, and there was Corinne, wearing a full-length aqua gown. For the next twenty minutes, she performed The Necklace, a short story by Guy du Maupassant that she had memorised. All eyes were on Corinne. The audience was listening to every word. You could hear a pin drop. "'Everyone applauded her at the end. "'I remember thinking that this must be as close to actually being God as you could get. "'I went up to Mr Gottlieb and asked if I could study acting with him. "'How old are you?' he asked. Eleven. Wait till you're thirteen. "'If you still want to study acting, I'll take you on.' When my mother was in pain, the fat heart specialist came to our house. I say fat only because Dr. Rosenthal died of a heart attack a few years later. Even though I was, and even though I was very young, I instinctively associated his death with how many cokes he drank whenever he came to our house. One day, he came because my mother felt a terrible pressure in her chest. Dr. Rosenthal told me to go around the corner where they were putting up a new house, steal a heavy brick, and then wrap the brick in a washcloth and place it on top of my mother's chest over her heart. It sounded crazy. I waited until all the workers had left the new house. At the end of the day, I then went and picked up a good-sized brick, tucked it under my sweater, and walked home as fast as I could. I wrapped the brick in a washcloth and placed it on top of my mother's chest. Oh, honey, that feels so good. In the months that followed, I would substitute my head for the brick. I'd push my head down with both hands as hard as I could, and she liked that even more than the brick. One Sunday afternoon, my dad dropped me off at the Uptown movie theatre so I could see a Sunday matinee. I didn't tell him that I'd taken his flashlight out of the utility closet and hidden it in my jacket. After I paid the cashier and brought my popcorn and milk duds, I went into the theatre, which was almost full. The picture had already started, but in those days, most people were used to coming in after a movie started. They would stay until they saw a familiar scene in the next showing and then leave. This Sunday, the movie was double indemnity with Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray. It was in black and white. I watched for about 20 minutes, but when it started getting mushy, kissing, I took the flashlight out of my jacket and began shining it onto the screen. When people looked around to see which punk was doing this, I shut the flashlight off fast. When the audience settled down again, I switched the flashlight back on. I started making circles on the screen, my beam of light competing with the beam from the projector. "'I got such a feeling of joy from doing this "'until the manager came down the aisle "'with a horrible look on his face "'and told me to come with him. "'I followed him into my office, "'into his office, excuse me. "'What's your name?' "'Jerry Silberman. "'Please don't tell my father. "'Give me the flashlight.' "'He took my father's flashlight "'and kicked me out of the theatre. "'It was drizzling outside.' I felt ashamed, standing under the overhang in front of the theatre, wondering whether or not to tell my dad about his flashlight and about the manager kicking me out. I decided it would be safer if I waited till my dad noticed the missing flashlight himself, and that might not happen for months. He was born in Russia, but came to Milwaukee with his family when he was 11. He wasn't dumb, but he was very innocent, and I knew what I could get by And I knew what I could get by with if I wanted to evade a situation. After I waited in the rain for an hour and ten minutes, my father drove up. I jumped into the car. So, how was the movie, he asked. It was great, Daddy. It was really good. I started talking about acting lessons with Herman Gottlieb the day after my 13th birthday. Okay. Gene Wilder, Kiss Me Like a Stranger." We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's go to Dan. Evening, Dan. Evening, how are you? Good, thank you, Dan. What you got for us?
7: Uh, yeah, I just heard you were looking for someone to call, so uh, I decided to ring in. I don't quite know how to follow that, though.
1: Well, you don't have to. Well, you, you, you're only following it in, in terms of the uh, uh, structure of time, but you don't have to top it.
7: <laughs> no, I I know nothing about Gene Wilder at all.
1: I know he's an actor, but... Keep listening. Yeah. to Keep listening. I think we're going to find out a lot about him tonight.
7: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So anyway, a first time first time caller and um love love the show and the, mainly listen to podcasts and uh, yep. been listening since sort of March and whatever and I know you don't take uh, compliments that well, but honestly, great show. Really like it.
1: Thank you, Dan. Uh, when you say March, do you mean March of this year or March of last year? March of last year. Okay, because uh, yeah, we're coming up. I think it's next week. It's the uh, the first anniversary yeah. of the newly, uh, you know, of, of of talk radio in this um, incarnation. So it it, it it will have been a year, and I think it's um. It, 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 I think it's achieved some great stuff. I think it's it, 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 there has been some brilliant radio created as a direct result of it. So, um, you know, I'm glad that people like you are finding it and, and are listening and, and are uh, deciding to call in as well.
7: Yeah, it's just the um, it's the honesty of it all. It's just, um, you know, there's no filter to me. It doesn't seem to me. Everyone you talk to and everything you do is just honest and it is as it is and...
1: Uh we don't you know you don't hear much of that these days. So um Do you uh, do you listen to any other shows on the station, Dan? Uh no. May May I um May I recommend recommend one that you might like and, and, okay. and people that like this show quite often my show quite often like this show I'm gonna recommend. But okay. also some people that like the show hate that show and vice versa. But John Holmes Okay. He's on in the weekday. It's, I I think there's a podcast as well of John's. Right. John Holmes, he's on um one till four, Monday to Friday. Yeah. Um and I would say give it a couple of goes because it's different okay. to this. He's got his own style. Yeah. And it might not click the first listen. So I would suggest give it a couple of listens and, and, and see if you like it. But I but I think he's doing some um some he's unique. And it's not very often you can say that genuinely about someone. He is unique, and I, I, I think he's doing some great stuff. Yeah, i definitely check him out. Yeah, mm-hmm. sounds good. Nice one, Dan. Yeah. Thank you, mate. I appreciate that. Uh, John Holmes, if you are th- looking for the podcast, H-O-L-M-E-S. Monday to Fridays, uh, 1 till 4. Uh, there is a lot of crossover, I notice, in um, listeners to this show and to John's show. And John's show is, is, is I believe, in the last set of figures... Um, the most popular show on this station How's about that um, John and Mark we'll come to you in a bit um, 0344 499 Um, You're listening to Kiss Me Like a Stranger The Gene Wilder autobiography I bought it for a penny on um, Amazon And um, Yeah let's see how far we get with it
2: Late night Ian Lee on Talk Radio
0: We have ways of making you talk
1: I was 11 when I learnt about sex. From my cousin Buddy, naturally. We were both in a co-ed summer camp. I couldn't believe what he was saying. Oh, Buddy, what are you talking about? It's the truth. You put your poopy into her thing. Honest to God. Well, how could that ever make babies? Because you've got to put your germs into her germs. That's how you do it. Well... What if you're embarrassed? I'm not going to take it out in front of a girl. Are you telling me you wouldn't like to show it to her if she showed you her whatcha call it? Well, then cousin Buddy told this crazy idea to Alan Pincus, another one of our friends. Alan was more shocked than I was. You're nuts. Well, how do you think you get babies, Alan? Do you think the stork brings them? Buddy tried his best to make Alan feel like a baby. Alan was embarrassed. No, of, of course not. <clears throat> I just thought it came from putting your saliva in with her saliva. <clears throat> you mean spitting at each other. Hang on. <clears throat> Excuse me. You mean spitting at each other. Buddy laughed so hard that I started laughing too. That was when I figured that Buddy must be right. He was an expert about these kinds of things. We never talked about sex in my family when I was growing up. The only time I came close to asking about it was when I was in second grade and I was walking home from school with two other boys. We saw a naked lady through her living room window, lying on a sofa, scratching her tush while she read a book. When she saw three little boys. Okay, I'm going to have to censor this a bit. When she saw three little boys staring at her, she jumped up and closed the curtains. We ran away, and I heard one of the boys use the word F. When I got home, I didn't tell my mother about the naked lady, but I did ask her what F means. You want to know what F means? she asked, as she pulled me into the bathroom and turned on the faucet. She ran a bar of ivory soap under the water and stuck it in my mouth. There, now you know what F means. I started crying, and then, as was her habit until she died... She started crying and begging me to forgive her. Begging and begging, until I finally went into her arms and she hugged me and kissed my tears and kept repeating, I'm sorry, honey, I was wrong, can you ever forgive me? My mother had a distant cousin who lived in Los Angeles and whose 13-year-old son was going to a place called Black Fox Military Institute, run by retired Colonel Black and retired Colonel Fox. My mother's cousin said she thought it was a wonderful place, and it was in Hollywood, California. What she didn't mention was that her son was going to Black Fox as a day student, so he went home each afternoon after school. Since my mother was ill and felt that she and my father couldn't give me the kind of training that I needed, now that I was thirteen she thought I still didn't know how babies were made, and I didn't have the guts to tell her that I did, she got it into her head that Black Fox Military Institute might be the perfect answer. I think she was influenced by a movie called Diplomatic Courier starring Tyrone Power. She thought that if I went to Black Fox, I would not only learn how to dance, play bridge and play the piano, but also how to be at ease with girls and learn everything there is to know about sex. So, off I went to Hollywood. Something else my mother didn't know was that almost every boy who lived at Black Fox came from a broken home. Mostly, they were sons of parents who wanted to get rid of their kids. Bleak, huh? Bleak. Evening John. Evening. What you got for us? Well, I had a whole sort of range
8: of things, but now I'm mostly thinking about Gene Wilder's relationship with his mother and what that must have done to him and how how he uh, how he ended up as an adult and what his relationships were like when he grew up because that all sounds if that's, you know, if, if we're not saying that's ghostwritten, then then those are the things that he yeah. wanted to tell the world about his mother, and it's all quite strange. It's,
1: it's we're, we're, we're um only 12 pages in, and boy oh boy, haven't we learnt a lot about the, the screwy relationship with his mum. I didn't know that people actually did wash out, you know, people's mouths with bars of soap. Catherine's telling me it happened to her. With actual yeah, no, bars remember, of
8: soap. Soap. I remember my father trying to do it to my brother, but he never, he, I think he basically chickened out. Or, as you know, if I remember rightly, my mother screamed so much that he stopped. But um, yeah, my, my, my father did try to do it once. But, but it's the, the fascinating thing is this whole bit about actually the, almost the first thing he tells you about his mother is that he was told that he had the power of life and death
1: oh god kath you missed this bit you were out the, 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 she's got heart problems his mother and he's he's a kid and the fat heart uh, cardiologist he calls him that um pulled him to one side and said don't get angry with your mum. you could kill her imagine what imagine that saying that to a yeah. child you've got the power to kill your mother and then but the, the other
8: interesting thing is that that bit is is sandwiched in between two really quite sexual Passages in the in the book. There's that first sort of whole bit, of uh, sort of dream sequence thing at the start, yep. and then there's the whole, then, then we go almost straight into how we learn about sex at a, mm. at, a, uh, at, a at a camp. There's a, there's a very strange sort of Freudian, Oedipal sort of. Oh, I think going so, on.
1: I think so. And, I, and this is a gentleman uh, from what little I know about him. The, 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 every word in this book is his, um, but 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 went through many many years of of therapy, as was um, almost fashionable to a certain extent in Hollywood in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and he, I, I think he's you know he's kind of waving the red red flag here saying, my mum screwed me up guys. <laughs> my yeah. mum screwed me up. <laughs> I'm screwed up by my mother
8: but then it also raises the whole question of that, that very fact that he went through therapy. Is is that book actually an outcome of the therapy, mm-hmm. rather than actually an outcome of his own thoughts about what went on in his life? Because to, that, to, uh, to shove to to, to
1: to shove a bar of soap in a kid's mouth is abuse. It's abuse? Yeah. yeah and um, um, like and wrong. and then she does what what abusers quite often do. Abusers tend to have two kind of things they do afterwards. They're either completely dismissive of the person they've just abused or they're begging forgiveness i'm, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry you know you it a lot in spousal abuse which is why quite often partners who are abused by their the husbands or wives stay with them darling i'm so sorry i will never do it again you know this isn't me i'm just having a bad day and i'll, I'll never do it again and obviously you know in the instance with with Jean's mum um uh, she did it all throughout his childhood yeah. And then you've got that overlaid with the
8: fact that actually he knows that she's going to die. Mm. And uh, and actually, he could cause that death if he wasn't careful. So, of course, you're going to forgive. And what, what else of choice has the child got? For I to forgive?
1: carried around, John, for a long... My mother... I don't know how regular you listen. My mum's very ill. She's yeah, got, well got MS. And, she's a, and I carried around for a long time. I didn't think that i caused her MS. But I did think that I'd triggered it, because the, just before she started getting a bit poorly, and we we thought well, something a bit weird, um I had a massive, massive row, massive row with her. And I'll tell you why, and this is why I'm a bit funny around sex, because um she found out that instead of staying at a mate's house overnight, I was actually staying with my girlfriend, who she didn't like. And, you know, yeah. the, 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 the night I lost my virginity. And came back... And had this massive row with her, a huge row, terrible, said terrible things to her. And then shortly after that, she started to display what became the early symptoms of of MS. And for a long, long time, because it can be caught, you know, MS can be made worse by stress. For a long, long time, I kind of thought, maybe I brought it on years yeah. years before it was meant to come on. I don't know. I don't I know I'm saying aloud, I still don't know really. I probably didn't yeah. but, but 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 I think we
8: we all do that to ourselves. I, I have a similar a similar thing where I, I for most of my childhood I was in a wheelchair and a lot of the time my mother used to carry me around when I was much too old to be carried around, mm. and and then she got a really bad back, and her her spine crumbled away in a, in in, uh, in later life, and, and she's sort of uh, in a wheelchair herself now. And I spent a lot of time wow. thinking, well, actually, you're in a wheelchair now. She actually ended up in the same initially. She ended up in the same wheelchair that I mm. used, and you, and you and you end up thinking, well, you know, that's that's my I caused that. That's clearly you know that's that's that, that, that's uh, that's my penance, as it were, for the things that I did, but. Yeah. uh yeah, ultimately, you know, I guess what we all have to do is to rationalise some of that yeah. stuff away, otherwise we... I, isn't you know, that, uh,
1: gosh, isn't that in- 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 incredible? And yet, of course, I don't know if you're a parent, John, but I would, I would jump in front of a bus for my boys. You, you know, yeah, it, we, yeah. we, we, as parents, we would do, most parents, obviously there are exceptions, most parents That's would it. do anything, you know, d- d- yeah. detrimental to themselves to improve them now, their kids' know, lives. Much- yeah, and my mother's exactly
8: the same now. She would still do anything. She, mm. she doesn't have any of those thoughts. Those thoughts have never, you know, have never come out of her mouth. That's all stuff that my own history. Yeah, is yeah. But but you know, we, we tend to do that to ourselves. Yeah,
1: you're right. That, 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 my mother has never said. Oh, I remember that big argument, and that's when I, yeah. of course, of course, she's never said it because she she's never made that connection because it was just no. it was just bad luck, and um, and she was turning forty, and and it kind of can come on at forty, and um you're right it's it's it, 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 it's all our heads my head your head that have constructed these um these things
5: yeah
8: we, we you know we, our brains have a great ability to take sort of completely abstract sort of uh, uh, memories or facts or ideas and either at the time or sometimes years later Start to draw all sorts of connections that, frankly, did not exist at the time, didn't, you know, are not, yeah. not real connections, but um, we're, looking for, we're looking for an answer, we're looking for a narrative. It's the same as seeing faces in the clouds, mm. that actually, we, we, you know, we, we're trying to make a story out of something that wasn't really a story in the first place, mm. but you know, we're seeking some sort of answer for ourselves. Mm. You know, in my case, I want to. I, you know, I think I want a reason why why my why my mum became so ill. Why a good person yeah. became so ill? Well, actually, here you go. Give us. You could, know, if, if you're naturally inclined as I am and as I think you are, to be quite negative about yourself. Mm. Well, OK, so I'm looking for a reason as to why my mother's so ill. Oh, look, it is a nice easy reason. It's clearly your fault because mm. uh, she had to carry you around. And you, you give yourself an answer, oh, yes. you give yourself a reason, and uh, 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 and you build a narrative around it. And it's not,
1: it's not real. It's, it's not um, true. It's, honestly, but. this this I've never heard anyone express that so beautifully as you've just done. Absolutely. What you have said is me. Absolutely spot on. Yes, that's incredible. Thank you for that, John. Yeah. That's incredible. Right, right. right, we are. We are in fact the same
8: age, and I think born in the same month. Oh, so we're old. We, we, we have years. We have things in common.
1: How, have, how are you? How things. are you looking, John? Because I'm really starting to think now. I'm starting to look old. Oh yes, yes, I had the, I had
8: the misfortune of appearing in the local paper this week. Uh oh. And, uh, not for anything, not for anything bad. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
1: but anyway, but I, I hope you did a glum uh, face. I hope you did one of those glum well, faces pointing down to a dog poo or something
8: no i i, I uh, for my for my work I, I i work in schools and there was an article about the school but uh, they uh, they they used a rather old stock photo, so it was quite nice in one sense cause yeah. it it, uh, yeah. it it was it makes me look much younger than i am but um, but uh, the the difficulty is you look at that and you go, "Oh dear, I don't yeah. look like that anymore and that was only um, three years ago all the photos you know, photo on
1: three, um, three all the photos on my my website are about five six years. Old and, you know, in my head I still look like that guy. I don't look Mm. anything like that guy in real
8: life. Well, it's the same as I've spent most of my life telling people that I'm blonde and there is no way that my hair is blonde. <laughs> um, I think it may have been blonde when I was about three, but, but my, my, my concept, I, I'm still surprised. I'm surprised when I hear my own voice play back to me and I'm surprised when I look in the mirror because the person I see in the mirror and the voice I hear if you play it back to me is not the one that I conceive myself to be at all. It, there's, a, there's a complete mismatch, but you know, the, I, I don't think that's particularly unusual either. I think that most people People, most people's um, self-image and, and their actual self are quite different.
1: Here's the thing: I bought um I bought my boys a cassette recorder. You know those old rectangular oh, yeah. cassette recorders, because I, I like yeah. them to know about records and tapes and things. Yeah. And so we bought a cassette recorder and recorded their voices and them talking. And I played it back and I said, "Do you think that sounds like you?" And they went, "Well, yeah, of course it does." I'm thinking, "Well, hang on, that's not how it's supposed to go. They're supposed no." Uh, but then, of course, <laughs> but then it, then it dawned on me everything they do is filmed they've you know ever since they've been born i've got video cameras on my phone you know i'm recu- yeah. everything they've of course, they've heard their voices back millions of times whereas when we were kids in the 70s to, to get a tape record it was a yeah. real novelty you hear yourself yeah. back and, and it was like god but but they hear themselves back
8: all the time, all the time. it's not yeah. a
1: novelty for them
8: and they see themselves. I remember the first time we, we took taking a video camera on holiday for the first time with some friends and actually seeing myself yeah, 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 yeah. my <laughs> on video for the first time. That was an amazing... You look awkward. And I always look
1: awkward yeah. and gangly and my arms are yeah. too long and all of that stuff.
8: Yeah, uh, uh, but they grow- the, ch- the children growing up you now. That's 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 all they've ever seen. They see themselves constantly. That's a very different. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting thought because that must be such a different experience, mm. and that must really uh, totally uh, totally influence your self-esteem and your self-reflection. Mm. If, if, if you know, if you're always seeing that, uh, that's that's a really interesting thought of what the impact of that is.
1: John, I've I've really enjoyed your call. Thank you so much. That's all right. No, nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you too, mate. Thank you very much indeed. Um, 0344 4991000 Mark, stick around if you want. I will come to you, I promise. But um, I'm keen to find out more about this um, book. So he's just going to the military academy. On the first night at Black Fox, I was assigned to a room on the second floor of the dormitory. When I walked in, I was greeted by a short, tough-looking boy with acne all over his face. Hi, I'm Jonesy, he said. We're going to be roommates for a long time, so I'm taking this bed and you take that one. When I got into my brand new pyjamas that first night, Jonesy started smiling at me and said, Oh God, this has taken a very, very dark twist. Let me speak to Mark first and then we'll go, this is taking a very, very, Mark. Hello, Ian. Hello, Mark. You're right. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, de- if, uh, it's going to take a very, very dark twist, and we'll take a dark twist after midnight. Okay. It's straight in there, page 13. Wow. Okay.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it feels a bit trivial what I'm about
1: to no, say. It's no, no, beautiful. Trivial is no. wonderful.
2: We love it. All right, then. Danny Kendall's demise. Yeah. <laughs> here we go. Fantastic. Yes. Go on. Right, I'm pretty sure it was in the back of Mr. Bro- um, Bronson's car. Remember Mr. Bronson with a tash who bullied him mercifully? Yes, he wore he wore a wig, didn't 80. he? And he,
1: when, when he went yeah. swimming, he took the wig off and the kids stole the wig.
2: Yeah, and, and I'm pretty sure he sort of, not on purpose, but he, 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 his demise was in the back of Mr. Bronson's car. Um,
1: I think it was. What was he doing in the back of the car? I don't, know, was it, I don't know. Did he have a drug overdose or something like no, that? No, I Mr. think... Didn't he have, like, a heart condition or something? I, I oh, thought it was right, natural did, yeah. causes. Yeah, yeah, he...
2: he had a heart condition, yeah. And, um, he but just... I don't know how he triggered how he died, how he actually yes, died, but I'm sure he, he triggered it so it'd be in the back of Mr Bronson's car. And Mr Bronson, by the way, was in the first Star Wars film and Indiana Jones, the first Indiana Jones film.
1: Um, really? Yep. Hmm... You don't <laughs> because, see yeah, many of the grain-chill people anymore, do you? Well, funny you should say that, Ian, because oh. a year after,
2: he, he, um, he, about a year after he was in it, yeah. I went into McDonald's in Harlesden after school, yeah. and who was working behind the counter? Gripper Stepson. Was he really? And um, I, I, I'm sure I said a, a hamburger, and he misheard me, he goes, you say cheeseburger, and I just looked at him and said, yes.
1: Wow, you were, you were terrified by Gripper
2: Stebson working in yes, McDonald's. Yes, even though I didn't want cheese in my burger, I, I said it because it was Gripper.
1: Flipping heck.
2: Well, and also, yes. I, I think everyone had a teacher, like Mr... Um, Bronson, and also a PE teacher like Bullet Baxter. Bullet Baxter.
1: Yeah, we did. We did have one like um, Bullet Baxter. Um, um, Mr., uh, Mr. 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 Uh, Wakeford, a, a man who had who had it was past his prime, but was I, I believe the description barrel chested would would describe him perfectly. <laughs> Very. He didn't like me from lesson one. I remember this lesson one, you know, so you go, we went to, I went to a grammar school because so we still had the 11 plus. And, um, the, 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 first, the first day at school, you'd go into like French and the, it would just be, so what is French about? And, and what is, what is history about? And we <laughs> yeah. go for the first games lesson. We we're all sat in the change room. We, I don't know any of the people I'm with. And he goes, right. So what can you learn from sports? You, boy. To, um, uh, it's good for your health. Yeah. You, boy. Teamwork. And he, he went on to about eight or nine. And I was about the tenth boy. And he picked me up. I, I couldn't... I went, teamwork? He went, we've already had that. Pick another. And from that day on, that man made my life a misery. An absolute yeah,
2: misery. I must admit, my PE teacher hated me. Um, my, my, my dad was going to go out and sort him out. But... Um, he, 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 he detested me for some reason. I don't know why. It's
1: funny, isn't it? Isn't it funny? To you. Yeah. And another teacher who um, was a science teacher. I won't go into any more detail because he was um, horrible. And he I was, was getting bullied quite badly in the second year by some people that were in his class. And so we, 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 my parents reported it. And he said, he was quite senior in the school, he said, I'll sort it out. So he called yeah. me into his office one day and the other lads that were bullying me were there and he said are these the boys that are bullying you i said yeah he said right well they told me that they haven't been bullying you and they're really good students of mine so i don't believe you so why are wow. you lying about these boys And i'm there i'm 11 going uh um <laughs> and he, he humiliated me and of course they carried on bullying me and then he carried on bullying me this teacher, this horrible—he was also in charge of cross country, and he'd make me run cross country. Oh, horrible! Well, just, horrible just, man. just by having
2: them, just by having them in the same room, he's given them carte blanche to to carry on bullying you, really, hasn't he? He said, "Go on, let's carry on bullying him." Yeah,
1: really. Yeah, it's it, exactly. To, to some teachers are right old. I'm so lucky that the boy, the teachers my boys have got at the moment, are absolutely delightful. But. Jeez, I mean, some of them, some of them, it don't bear thinking about. I think, it
2: was, I think it's, it's, it's our day though, because I mean, my so, my son's six and 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 his, his his teachers, you couldn't you couldn't meet a better bunch. Do you know what I mean? But mm. it's just, I think it was our, our 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 age group sort of thing, you know. Mm. Mm.
1: Mark, thank you for that. I really enjoyed that. Thank you, mate. Cheers, mate. Right. <clears throat> um, we'll carry on reading the Gene Wilder book. It, uh, I, I warn you, I've just I've, I've not read this book before. Okay. I've just glimpsed at the next paragraph. Um, It gets quite grim. Um, And bearing in mind that in the first 12 pages, we've learnt about how he was told as a child that he could kill his mum if he got angry with her, Um, and she used to abuse him by cleaning his mouth out with soap and then begging for forgiveness, Um, it gets even darker than that. So, um, some of you may want to switch off at midnight. Um, because, I don't know, you might find it triggering or you might find it up... I, I've literally just glanced at the paragraph and I have a, a vague idea of um, of where it's going to go. So uh, it's up to you if you want to stick around or not. Uh, you can still call in. There's another hour of this to go. Um, 0344 499 We haven't got any phone calls lined up at the moment, but um, um, when, when the calls come up on the screen and I find a, a, an appropriate break in the book... I will. Um, I'll stop and I'll, I will address the calls. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand is the telephone number. Um, we're reading "Kiss Me Like a Stranger," Gene Wilder's autobiography, and um, you're listening to Talk Radio. Late night, Ian Lee on Talk Radio.
0: We have ways of making you talk.
1: Someone on Twitter has um, said, <clears throat> "Why would you not reply to anyone?" I'm assuming because you've, if you're still listening, um, it's, it does get thoroughly unpleasant, this next bit, and some of you might find this upsetting. I've not read it, I've just, um, oh, what's a horrible paragraph, just glimpsed at it, um, 0344 I'll keep reading, no one may call in, in which case we get an hour of the book, um, people may call in. And when I come to an appropriate break, if I see them on the switchboard, which I will because it's right in front of me, I'll, I'll, I'll put them on and we'll have a chat. You can call in about the book. You can call in about anything else you want. <clears throat> um, on my first night at Black Fox, I was assigned, reading Gene Wilder's autobiography, if you just tuned in. On my first night at Black Fox, I was assigned to a room on the second floor of the dormitory. When I walked in, I was greeted by a short, tough-looking boy with acne all over his face. Hi, I'm Jonesy, he said. We're going to be roommates for a long time, so I'm taking this bed and you take that one. When I got into my brand-new pyjamas that first night, Jonesy started smiling at me and said, Let me cornhole ya." I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Then he told me to just lie down on my bed, face down. He got on top of me, And put his penis between my thighs and started pumping away until he had an orgasm. His jizz went onto my new pyjamas, not into me. After he saw how upset I was, he never tried to do that again. He just jerked off in the closet. I told you. And then, it goes on to, and then it goes on, and then it goes on, that's that. Isn't that incredible? How, how honest, and how open. Wow. Gene Wilder. Incredible. This was 1946. When word got out that I was Jewish, some of the bigger boys started coming into my room and pounding me on the chest and on my arms. They didn't hit me in the face, and I was glad of that, but I couldn't understand why they wanted to beat me up. They never said why. One tall jerk named McIntosh barged into my room one day and started dancing around me like an Indian in the movie circling a covered wagon. And he kept singing, We want the country, we want the country. It scared me, but he didn't hit me, so I was okay. I remembered seeing some movie about initiation tests when you got into a fraternity, so I figured it was some kind of tradition to beat up the newest cadets. Then I found out that I was the only Jewish boy at Black Fox so I finally understood the reason. But it still didn't make any sense. I went to the sergeant's room at the end of the hall. He was a real sergeant who took the job at Black Fox when he retired from the army. I told him about all the beatings and asked him what I should do. You want them to stop beating you up? Yes, sir. The next time one of them comes into your room, pick up a chair and smash it over his head. But I can't do that. What if I killed him? You asked me what to do. I told you. I never went to him for help again. There were several Mexican boys at Black Fox who came from very wealthy families. In those days, bubblegum was very hard to come by, but the Mexican boys always seemed to have some. Instead of charging the other boys one penny, which was the market price for one of those pink bubblegum squares, they would charge one dollar. The tallest Mexican boy kept trying to sell me bubblegum and I kept telling him that I didn't have that kind of extra money. Then he would say, "I give you a bubblegum if you jerk me off." I would laugh and pretend that he was making a joke, but I knew that he wasn't joking. On Fridays, we always had a dress parade, which meant tie, jacket, hat and well-shined shoes. We marched on the Black Fox drill field, which bordered on Melrose Avenue and Wilcox. People in the neighbourhood would stand along the sidewalk each Friday afternoon to watch all the cute young cadets go through their routines. As we were marching, one flamboyant, very likeable young boy named Ronnie, who had a shock of bright red hair, kept telling me that he was going to be a big star one day. I would say that I was studying acting with Herman Gottlieb, who was a great teacher in Milwaukee. Ronnie would just answer, You'll never make it, Silberman. I'll bet you anything you want that I'll be famous before you are. People who live in Hollywood are different from other people. On Thursday afternoons, I went to my piano lesson. The teacher was a nice enough man, but not a very good teacher. He assigned me just one song called, ironically, Nobody Knows the Troubles I've Seen. I don't remember if I ever told him about the troubles I was having with the other boys. I don't think so. And I know he wasn't that good a teacher to have purposely assigned that song to me as a way of using my unhappiness to help me play it better. I wrote to my father and told told him about all of this stuff, but he never showed any of those letters to my mother, I suppose for the same reason that I didn't write to her about it. At Thanksgiving, I called my father and asked if I could come home for Christmas vacation. He said yes. When it came time to leave, for some reason I can't explain, I needed to say goodbye to Jonesy. My bags were packed and the bus was waiting downstairs, but I searched all over the floor for him. When I finally found him, he shook my hand and said, So long, pal. Jonesy and I were never friends, and he was a jerk, but he never beat me up, and he had acne. I don't know why I needed to say goodbye to him. I'm sure it wasn't because he cornholed me. I do remember that on one occasion he shared a box of candy with me that his aunt had sent him. Maybe it was because someone told him that chocolate wasn't good for acne. My father and Corinne picked me up at the airport in Chicago and we drove back to Milwaukee. I had on my blue, sort of itchy dress uniform, but I wanted to be wearing it when I walked into the house and saw my mother again. She was waiting in our living room. When I walked in, she hugged and kissed me. Then she asked me to play something for her on the piano. God, I didn't think it would come that soon. I wanted to put it off. I made up some kind of flimsy excuse about not having practice for several weeks, but she wanted to hear me play just a little bit. So I sat down at the piano and played Nobody Knows the Troubles I've Seen, and I played it terribly with a hundred mistakes. She got up and went into her bedroom. I began to cry. My dad said maybe I should change my clothes and get ready for dinner. I took off my shirt and went into her bedroom to explain how I only had one lesson a week and how little time there was for me to practice, when she suddenly gasped. She was staring at my body. There were black and blue bruises on my chest and arms. My dad finally told her some of the troubles i described in my letters. She started crying and begging me to forgive her, until I finally went into her arms and she kissed my tears and kept repeating, ''I'm sorry, honey, please forgive me, I was wrong, can you ever forgive me?'' I never went back back to Black Fox. When I was 15, I went to a downtown movie theatre to see Great Expectations, but before the movie started, they showed a short subject called Vincent Van Gogh. I had no idea who Vincent Van Gogh was. I'd never even heard of him. 23 of his oil paintings flooded the screen, one after the other in full colour. I don't know why they call it dumbfounded. I think they should call it dumb dumblosted, because after seeing the paintings, I was lost. When I walked out of the movie theatre, I started thinking about my second-grade teacher, Miss Bernard, who used to put up paintings from all of the other boys and girls in my class on the classroom walls, paintings that she considered worthy, but she never put up one of mine. She never told me why or gave me an encouraging word, but I got the message... You're no good at art, Jerry. The following Sunday, I took an early train to Chicago to see the Van Gogh exhibition at the Chicago Art Institute. I could only stay for an hour because I had tickets for the two o'clock matinee to see Judith Anderson in Medea. My critical judgment wasn't fine-tuned yet. I thought the play was just okay. Then I walked to a theatre about half a mile away to see the five o'clock showing of Laurence Olivier's film version of Hamlet. That was okay too hamlet let out at 10 past 8 p.m so i ran as fast as i could so i so i ran so fast as i could eat my hot dog to see the eight thirty p.m stage performance of a streetcar named desire starring Uta hagen and anthony quim that was more than okay i think what i did was dumb crowding all those great things into one day But Milwaukee was a big, small town in those days, and it would never have had a Van Gogh exhibit or Medea, 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 am I saying that right, Medea, or Streetcar Named Desire with Uta Hagen. Today, perhaps, but not in 1948. My mother had wanted to be a pianist before she got married. When I told her about the Van Gogh exhibit and how much I loved him, she gave me a little money to buy some paints. I took the bus to an art supply shop downtown and bought eight tubes of oil paint and two frames of stretched canvas, 18 by 24 inches apiece. The owner of the store helped me pick out a couple of brushes and advised me to take a small bottle of linseed oil. I also bought a print of a Van Gogh painting for $3.50. It was called Lady in a Cornfield. When I got home, I set up shop in our basement, mounted the Van Gogh print on a chair and painted Lady in a Cornfield. My mother liked it so much that she had it framed and hung it on our living room wall next to her piano. I've been painting ever since. So, you didn't win, Miss Bernard. You didn't win. My first play. When I was still 15, I auditioned for the Milwaukee Players, which was a very good community theater that put on big productions of classics and also gave lessons in makeup. I passed my audition, and the first play I acted in, in front of a paying audience, was Romeo and Juliet. I played Balthazar, Romeo's manservant, and I had only two lines, but I also had a fencing scene, which I loved. It wasn't real fencing, of course, it was just sort of try-to-make-it-look-real fencing. My next part was The Messenger in Much Ado About Nothing. One evening evening, while we were in production, I got to the theater early and had just started putting on my makeup when one of the male dancers came in very bouncy and cheerful. He'd always been very friendly, but when he saw that we were alone, he started behaving strangely. I had never met a homosexual before. I'd only heard Corinne talk about what were then called fairies, but this handsome dancer, who must have been at least ten years older than I was, started chasing me around the children's classroom that we use as a make-up room. I dodged in and out of the rows of little desks, trying my best to make the dancer believe that I believed that he was just playing a game. Just as I was getting frightened, two other actors came in, said hi, and started putting on their make-up. I sat down at my desk and started putting makeup on again. I didn't look at the dancer until he knelt down next to me. You know I was just joking around, don't you? he whispered. Of course! Are you kidding? I wish I'd acted in Much Ado About Nothing as well as I did for the dancer. End of chapter. Wow. It's just, just. Let all of that, um. Sink in, that's some um that's some heavy shiz, isn't it? In that uh in that um no one's calling in. That means um one of two things, as far as I can tell. You've all switched off, which is possible, which is absolutely possible, um or you're all engrossed in this book. You can call him 0344. Four nine nine one thousand oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand you can call in to talk about the book you can call in to talk about you know the drill you can call in about anything you want. You can phone in and tell me that this is a load of rubbish if you want you 'd be more than welcome otherwise, if no one calls in there 's only another forty five minutes i 'll carry on reading the book i will take um, I will take no calls. As a tacit thumbs up that you're okay with me doing this 0344 499 1000 is the phone number late nights with Ian Lee on talk radio
2: uncut after hours conversation for the up all night generation late nights
1: Ian Lee on talk radio
0: we have ways of making you talk
1: we have no calls so we continue I take that as a sign of you've either all switched off or you're all digging the book Gene Wilder's autobiography, Kiss Me Like a Stranger. Um, I think I bought this about um two, two or three weeks before he passed away. I think. Penny. A penny on Amazon. They, they say a penny. It's two pounds eighty postage, so you know. But <clears throat> I had no idea. This has been si- I've not read it. This has been sitting on my bookshelf for months. And I just grabbed it as I was coming in tonight. Just grabbed it and thought, oh. We'll have that. don't know what... And I was going to read it at home, but, the, you know, it's it's just been one of those shows. If you want to call in and, and, and talk about the book or say the book is rubbish or say what I'm doing is rubbish or, you know, talk about anything, you're very welcome. 03444991000. Otherwise, I'll just crack on reading. Chapter 3. Take me. When Corinne was 20, she went to act... This is his sister. At the Reginald Goods Summer Theatre near... Now, I never know how to say this place... I think it's Poughkeepsie, Po Poughkeepsie, P O U A P O U G H. Catherine is typing it phonetically on my screen. Just say it. Go on. What is it? It's Poughkeepsie. Is it Poughkeepsie? Is it really? Did not know that. Okay, Poughkeepsie. P-O-U-G-H-K-E-E-P-S-I-E. I'll get it wrong again. But then. When Corinne was 20... She went to act at the Reginald Good Summer Theatre near Poughkeepsie, New York. You had to pay ninety dollars a week for food and lodgings. In return, you got the privilege of acting with the famous sixty eight year old Australian actor Reginald Good in front of a real summer stock audience six nights a week. A call came to our house in Milwaukee. Mr Good suddenly discovered that he was one man short for his acting company. I assume that some guy didn't want to pay the ninety dollars. Corinne told Mr. Good that her brother was an actor, and he told her to get me to Poughkeepsie immediately. I had just turned sixteen. I was thrilled, of course, but my father wasn't, unless they waived the ninety dollars a week fee they charged for the privilege of acting with Mr. Good. After a lot of bluster, Mr. Good agreed. I was on the train the next day. The playhouse was a beautiful old barn converted into a theatre. It held about five or six hundred people. "'All of the actors, except me, slept and ate in Reginald Good's private house "'across the huge lawn that separated the house from the theatre. "'I was assigned to a unique bedroom inside the theatre, just off stage left. "'The bedroom was about as big as a walk-in closet. "'When I went to bed that first night, it was a little frightening. "'It was so dark when I shot off... Uh, "'Shut off... "'Sorry, I'm just trying to do something on the screen there. "'It was so dark... When I shut off the one light bulb, and there were strange sounds all through the night. The old wooden barn was dancing with the wind. As I lay in bed trying to fall asleep, I saw a name carved into the wall beside me just above my head K. T. Stevens. I knew that name. I'd read about her. She was a famous actress from 15 or 20 years ago, and she must have slept in this same bedroom, probably in this same bed, and carved her name into the wall next to me, so that years later other actors would remember her. I ran my fingers over her carved name and whispered, Good night, Katie, then turned off my light bulb and fell asleep. The first play I acted in at the Playhouse was The Late Christopher Bean by Sidney Howard. I think I got more laughs than Mr. Good had expected. When the two of us were alone on stage and the audience started laughing at something I did or said, he would lean down and whisper, Wait for it, wait for it. The play was so successful that he held it over for another week. Or else he had to hold it over because he didn't have the next show ready, which was probably more likely. The next play was The Cat and the Canary. Henry Hull had played the lead on Broadway. Bob Hope played it in the movie, now I was playing the same part, but no one told me that old Mr Good was married to this gorgeous 23-year-old red-haired actress who was going to play my romantic interest. Her name was Rita. She explained to me privately that when we had our kissing scene, it shouldn't be a real kiss, which might throw both of us off. It should just look like a real kiss by putting our lips on the side of the other person's mouth just close enough so that it looked real.' I thought, well, that must be how real actors do it. Mr. Good worked in a bizarre way. After the evening performances, we all made sandwiches from a big roast ham that was set out each evening on the kitchen table. We drank milk or soda, no alcohol, and then we rehearsed most of the night, until just before the sun came up. That's the way Mr. Good wanted it. I loved it. For me, it was very romantic.' For Rita, too. Forget that on-the-side-of-the-mouth business. By the fourth day of rehearsal, she started kissing for real. Remember Seema Clark? The young Rita Hayworth with the fake Angora sweater who made me feel like a disgrace to God and my mother for trying to touch about half an inch of her breast? Because of her, I still hadn't tried to touch a girl's breast. Kiss a lot, yes, but breasts were too dangerous.' Of course, if Seema Clark had liked what I was doing and made some lovely sounds of encouragement, who knows? We rehearsed The Cat and the Canary for five nights and then on the sixth night before dress rehearsal and after strong signals from Rita, she and I drifted off towards the river bank. We knew there would be a long break while they were changing the sets. So we lay down on the grass near a little brook and kissed and kissed. No breasts, no penis. While we were lying there, she said, Take me. Take you where? I answered. I knew very well what she meant. I wasn't that dumb, but I wasn't prepared for the big time yet. I think that if Rita had been more aggressive on that particular night, my life would have taken a very different path. But she was careful where she touched me. Later, after rehearsing till 5am, I had just gotten into bed when I heard a knock at my door. It's me, Rita whispered. I opened the door, and there she was, in her nightgown, looking as beautiful as a fantasy. She got into bed with me, and we started kissing. After about four minutes, she said, What do you think would happen if I touched you here, pointing to the bulge underneath my pyjamas? Before I could answer, we both heard Reginald Good calling out from somewhere on the lawn near my bedroom door. Rita! "'He wasn't hollering and he wasn't whispering. "'It sounded more like a father calling out to his daughter "'who had stayed out too late one night, "'but now it was time for her to come home. "'I felt that he didn't know for sure if she was actually with me, "'but that he assumed she was. "'Rita got under the covers "'and wiggled down towards the bottom of the bed "'so that if Mr. Good did burst in, he wouldn't see her. "'I was scared to death. "'I do mean death. "'I imagined a shotgun.' Rita, he called again. But he didn't knock on my door, which I was terrified he was going to do. He listened for another minute or ninety seconds. While I held my breath, I could hear him breathing. He was that close. And then he walked away. After three or four minutes, Rita jumped out of bed, took a quick peek outside, and then ran across the lawn to the big house, just as the sun was coming up. Mr. Good never brought up this incident to me. Margie interrupted. She rarely did, but we were now in our second year together and I was used to it. Now wait a minute, Mr Wilder. She started using that little twist on Mr to emphasise whatever comic irony she was about to emphasise with me. Did you fondle her breasts? No. Did she ever suck you? No. Did you ever F her? No. Did you want to? Yes. Why didn't you? I don't have a reason that makes sense. Then give me a reason that doesn't make sense. I thought it was wrong. I don't mean for anyone else, just just me. I think I might have enjoyed it too much. What? Why would it be wrong if you enjoyed it too much? I lay motionless for almost a minute, searching for the answer, but I didn't know the answer. Margie wrote something in her pad. Not the end of the chapter, but it's uh, it's a good uh, it's a good place to pause. Imagine writing a book so honest. You know, I'm, I've been toying with the idea of writing a book, not an autobiography, but a book about my TV stuff. And I, at the moment, I'm erring on the side of that. I, can't, I don't think I will. But I can't imagine being that honest in... Um, I can't imagine being that honest in a book. It's incredible. Um, we've got a couple of calls. Waj! Yes, hello. Ian Lee, long time no here.
5: Is that so? It is. Yeah, I used to listen to you on uh, LBC. Hey, flipping it, man! That was years ago. <laughs> years ago, I know. Yeah. yeah.
1: Sorry about it. What's what's yeah, what's, what's been say... happening in the last um, uh, ten years? I've been switching uh, on and off. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that would uh, that would make sense. Yeah, and
5: I've been trying to look for you as well. Wag,
1: well, I've been hiding from you. I've been on witness yeah. protection. <laughs> I didn't want Wag. I said I don't want Wag to find me. Put me on some obscure yeah. radio stations where no one can hear me, and they did.
5: Uh, I heard you. I uh, changed a couple of radio
1: stations as well. I've been, I've been, um, I went, to, I've been in two or three radio stations since you last heard. me. Yeah. All right. How's life been? What enjoying radio then? Pardon. How's life been for you in the last ten years? Yeah, it's all, all good. I've been uh, married four years now. Hey, congratulations! You got any yeah, kids? Yeah, thanks. Uh, not yet. Do you want still kids? Having a bit of fun. I do, yeah. Having a bit of fun. Well, yeah. yeah. That's it. Yeah, though you you still have fun when you've got kids, but it's a just it's a completely different, much more expensive uh, kind of awake. fun. They keep you awake. all night, don't they, mate? That ain't even that ain't even half of it. Yes, they keep you awake all night, and it, it's relentless. But it's the you know yeah. it's the best. <laughs> hard they're hard the best people love. in the world. They are, yeah. So how did you find? How did you, you? Yeah, I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm married. I've got two little boys who are seven and five. Oh, good. Um, but how yeah. did you find this? How did you find this, Wadge? Have I you just discovered did, um, it tonight? Uh, no,
5: no, I discovered it uh, the first time I tweeted you. Don't know. Don't know if you remembered about. Two uh,
1: weeks ago. yes, yes, did yes. Yeah, yeah, I do remember. Me. Yes, I do remember, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that's I do. when I.
5: That's when I found it.
1: uh oh, well, Wicked. I'm. Well, I'm really pleased you've 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 um. Found it. Um, Obviously, I was on strike last week, and this week uh, is an odd... Mike Mendoza with Mike Mendoza as well. Yeah, it's sad what happened to Mike Mendoza, isn't it? I know it is he's on T V now, isn't he? Unfortunately for TV. I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> Mike Mendoza. <by laughs> yeah, I, I spoke to James uh, a couple of days ago as well. James, wow, I know it's it's yeah, I think yeah. it's really good what talk radio are doing for um uh, elderly radio presenters like James. It, give, giving them an opportunity to, uh, to to earn a few pennies and you know No, see, I
5: d I I don't think James will will ever retire.
1: <laughs> no, no, well he can't, he's in so much debt. He can't afford to You should
5: give him a loan. Yeah, well,
1: maybe you should, Wadge, maybe you should. Yeah. Well, and Wadge... nice to hear I listen to you every day now. Nice one, man, and, and you don't forget you can download the podcast and tell your friends to listen. We need as many yeah, people we'll listening as yeah. we can. Yeah, you can pay me a bit for that as well, well <laughs> advertisement. Thank you very much, Wadge. Well, the, 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 more than the station's doing at the moment. Thank you, mate. Dennis. Good evening, Good evening, Dennis. Now the town you were looking for was Poughkeepsie. Oh, no, Catherine! D- uh, does that, does everyone know how to say Poughkeepsie then, apart from me? You've seen enough films with it, in yes. I've I've read it in books. I mean, my favourite um, place to pronounce is Schenectady. 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 Schenect sh- is it sh- is it not Schenectady? It's no, it's a ch. No, it's a ch- no, Connect is it? Oh well, in that case, I've been pronouncing it wrong. Schenectady. Yeah. Uh, Oh, well. You'll get there. Yeah, one day. One day, Dennis.
2: Well, that's all right. Lovely reading. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed your reading that book. It's a good book,
1: isn't it? It's a bit grim. I didn't realise it was going to be so grim. Well, I might go go, go out and buy it. Well, you should do it. It's it's, it's a cracking little read. I'm, I'm going to carry on reading a bit more till the end of the show, I think. Right, well, I'll sit and listen. And I shan't be in bed till 2 o'clock, so... Thank you, Dennis. Well, you, you have a good night, fella. Uh, we'll carry on in a bit. 0344 is the telephone number if you want to give us a call. Late Nights with Ian Lee on Talk Radio.
0: Late Nights, Ian Lee. On air and off the list. On Talk Radio. We have ways of making you talk.
1: Uh, we're still on the same chapter. No time for comedies, the um, paragraph heading. When the season at the Reginald Good Theatre ended, Corinne and I went to New York and saw Death of a Salesman starring Lee J. Cobb and Mildred Dunnock. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Even after I'd started studying acting with Mr Gottlieb, I didn't know that acting could be this real. It was as if what I was watching was actually happening. Until that night, I had thought often about being a comedian, mostly because I'd seen Danny Kay in Up in Arms and then Jerry Lewis in Television and then, for me, the king of them all, Sid Caesar on your show of shows. But after seeing Death of a Salesman, I had no more thoughts of becoming a comedian. I wanted to be an actor. Perhaps a comic actor, but an actor, not a comedian. I went back to Milwaukee and made a one-hour adaptation of Death of a Salesman. I played Lee J. Cobb's part, of course, a 16-year-old Willie Loman. And along with two of my acting friends from school, we performed at churches and women's clubs all over Milwaukee and then in front of 2,000 students at my high school. I also began reading An Actor Prepares by Konstantin Stanislasky. One afternoon, while we were performing at some women's club, I came to the scene where Willie Loman is trying to plant seeds in his backyard at night. I was very relaxed. I don't think there was any tension in my mind or body. There was no actual earth, of course, only a wooden floor, but when I started planting, me as Willie Loman, carrots, quarter-inch apart, suddenly I was in a backyard, not an auditorium, planting seeds. I knew i wasn 't crazy. I heard everything that I was saying and what the other actors were saying. I knew I was acting in a play, but I also knew that I wasn't acting. Corinne had gone to the University of Iowa during my high school years. It was reputed to have one of the best uh, sorry one of the five best theater departments in the country. I drove from Milwaukee to visit Corinne in Iowa City several times we 'd go to a football game together and then i 'd see her in one of the university productions. When I was 17, I saw her play the part of Gwendolyn in The Importance of Being Earnest. After the show, I met her stage director, whom I liked very much. He looked at me for a second and then said, "'When are we going to get this fella?' Karim was invited to a party that someone was giving after the show. She told the host she would like to bring her kid brother along. "'We walked into an old Victorian house, stuffed with college students. There were all kinds of things to eat and drink.' Corinne introduced me to her roommate, Mary Jo, who had the most original lips I'd ever seen. Except perhaps for those of French actress uh, Jean Moreau. Uh, whom I'd seen in a movie called The Lovers. She and Moreau must have traded lip secrets. I wish that Mary Jo was going to my high school so that I could date her, but since she was a college student and I was what my father would have called a high school pisher, I honestly didn't think she would give me the time of day after we were introduced. I wasn't particularly handsome and I certainly wasn't very experienced, especially when it came to the opposite sex. But to my surprise... Mary Jo stayed with me during the whole party. We sat down on a small sofa and ate hors d'oeuvres and watched everyone else in the room, either kissing or drinking beer, or both. I don't know if I kissed Mary Jo first or if she kissed me. Maybe it was both at the same time. But we started kissing. And we kept on kissing. I don't remember anything we said to each other. I just remember the kissing and the look in her eyes where a small beam of light was reflected from a street lamp. When the party broke up, we said goodbye. I slept in my used car that night and drove back to Milwaukee the next morning. The memory of Mary Jo's eyes stayed in my dreams for a long time. As a high school graduation present, my mother and father let me go to New York to see plays, provided I stayed at an inexpensive hotel. The old Taft Hotel on 50th and 6th Avenue fit the bill. I saw gentlemen Prefer Blonde, starring Carol Channing. During her performance, I was particularly curious how she could keep using her throat to make the guttural guttural sound she used in her talking and singing without going hoarse. After the show, I stood at the stage door with a few other people waiting for her to come out. When she did, she signed some autographs and then came up to me expecting me to give her a programme to sign. I don't know where I got the nerve to say it. Miss Channing, does it hurt your throat when you talk and sing in that special way you do? She looked at me as if I were some kind of country bumpkin and said, I don't know what you're talking about. She gave me an autograph. I thanked her and she left. One evening, instead of seeing a play, I went to the Paris movie theatre and saw Charlie Chaplin in City Lights. More than any other movie i would ever seen, City Lights made the biggest impression on me as an actor. It was funny, then sad, then both at the same time. That fall, I went straight off to the University of Iowa, acting in the first production of the year, The Winslow Boy, directed by Corinne's director, whom I liked so much and who had said, when are we going to get this fella? The end of the chapter. 344 is the telephone number. Good time to take a break, I think.
0: Across the UK, online and on DAB.
2: Late night, Ian Lee on talk radio.
0: We have ways of making you talk.
1: Well, um... <laughs> um, tonight we're, um, it's been a strange week, hasn't it? But a really strange week of shows. I don't think Monday and Tuesday were that good, actually. Um, and then Wednesday and Thursday were, like, cl- classic late-90s, late-night phone-in shows. And tonight I'm reading you Gene Wilder's Kiss Me Like a Stranger. Um, and, um, it, it, it's, it's charming and horrific in equal measures. We don't, um... As adults, we don't read to each other, do we? And I tell you what, because I've always kind of poo-pooed audiobooks, but the last couple of weeks I've listened to, um, the, um, Alan Partridge Nomad, Johnny Marr autobiography. I started that gentleman, the, the, American gentleman, Doug Stanhope. I didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't like his tone. So I stopped. Um, and of course, I read to my boys and the boys that, that we're now, we, we've kind of stepped up a gear in the books that I'm reading at bedtime. And instead of reading kind of, you know, kids' books, we start, I bought them for Christmas, the complete Secret Seven. And they're loving it. And I used to have, I used to have all the Secret Seven books and I'm reading them and remembering them as I'm reading them. Um, and they're loving it. It's the joy of having a seven and a five year old tucked up in the same bed, one light on. And them actually getting scared, properly scared, um, hearing kids who are a little bit hearing about kids who are a little bit older than them having adventures, and it's just such a joy to read to them and have that impact. We don't read to each other as adults, do we? I read to my mum sometimes, um, not enough. I should do that a bit more. I should, and then we should say should, but I, maybe I could do it a bit more. Um, we'll read some more of this in a second. Malcolm's called in. Good evening, Malcolm.
9: Hello, Ian. Uh, listen, I, I actually thought I was tuning the BBC Radio 4 to Book Hour. Oh, thank you. <laughs>
1: no, I actually have.
9: actually. I've just come in. Like, I've just been out for a good night out to Kelly's Bar in Millsborough for the St. Patrick's Bash. It's been brilliant. So I've been out all day on the Guinness and all sorts, but I've come in tonight, night, put the radio on, and you've kind of relaxed as reading that book, and I just found it like, quite interesting. Uh I've got a lot of books we sell, you know, in the house. Honestly, you'll laugh at this, but I don't read them. Uh, why have you got? Why Why have you got them? Basically, what it was, to be honest with you, Ian, when what? I was younger, right? Mm. There was a, there was a book that used to come out every week. It was by Marshall Cavendish, the great, um, great writers, classics, and yeah, yeah. that's them. And I collected all them. There's about uh, I don't know about sixty or seventy of the books, hardback books, yeah, as well. Uh, they were out in nineteen eighty four. And what, what, what and are they, they, they
1: like? Like Great Expectations and A Tale of yeah, Two Cities, tale that of, kind of uh, stuff.
9: Pride and Dracula. They're they uh,
1: heavy. They are they are heavy reads. That's you know that's mm. that's kind of heavy stuff.
9: Yeah, uh, there's some really good books in that in you know, my collection. There, I sometimes get one out, you know, and read it from time to time. You yeah. know, Scrooge. Um, you know that kind of thing, and they've got a lot of Charles Dickens books in there. But um, I don't like Kindles, Ian. I don't know what you think no, of Kindles. I, 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 I'm I get li- a headache
6: with a Kindle. I'm absolutely. I'm not
1: a fan of them. I prefer. There's something about having a bag weighed down by books and holding books and smelling yeah. books, and you you know. Uh, but I'm not a fan. But listen, if it gets people reading, it's brilliant. But I I I do prefer oh, right, books.
9: Absolutely. I've just been like, turned to Radio on expecting to have a lot of crackpots on the night, in the weekend, and I found you reading the book, and I thought, is this BBC Radio 4? And I, carry, right. I knew it was you, I just carried on this, and I thought, hey, that's an interesting book. I may get a hold of that myself and have a read through it. You can <laughs> get it for
1: about, for about a penny on eBay. Uh, on uh, Amazon. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 about a penny, probably. Yeah. Although, it's, we've, we've sold... A book,
9: though, is it? Oh, what? Is there 2000- 2005,
6: new.
1: 12 years old. Gene oh, Wilder, right. Kiss Me Like a Stranger, the autobiography, it's uh, called.
9: I might get that from my ex-partner, um, right? Yeah. She's a, She used to be, perform on arts and dance and everything, so it might appeal to her. That kind of book, a bit oh. romantic type of thing there. She's beautiful. See that that, um, uh, what's that me. thing called again? Um, oh, God, I can't make a they've all, look, they've all got to see the pictures. What's that thing again? Um, what? Something to do with grey. Oh, God. Oh, Fifty called? Shades that's, of Grey. That's a, the that's a oh. thing. Fifty Shades Dark, however it's called. Yes, yes. You able to see that. Uh, it's not, really go along. I said, "You must be joking." I'm not going up there. To watch out, rubbish.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the first well, one was so. T- I took Dennis, who was on earlier on. I took him. Me and Kath took him to see the first Fifty Shades of Grey, and it was a very boring film. Made uh, the the only thing that made it bearable was the the scene where Mister Grey opens the door to his sex dungeon. Dennis very oh, loudly oh, right. in the cinema in Luton said, "That looks like my spare room. That does." <laughs> uh, so uh, I about mean, I I've saying, but hey, it's good to do this book
9: thing. You know, should do it on a regular basis. You know, well, come on the radio, do a little book. Uh, maybe somebody could write into you or phone in and recommend a couple of books that you could obviously not like massive books, short books to short read on the air books, yes, that and get people interested books.
1: in reading. Malcolm, uh, well, well, I'm going to squ- I'm going to move on because I want to squeeze Jamie in, and then we'll see if we can get a bit more of this book in. Um, but thank you, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Evening, Jamie. All right, mate. How you doing? Good, thank you very much. What you got for us? Um, reading.
5: I love reading, and I read to my kids all the time. And we are just about... Your phone call has reminded me of when I was a kid. I used to read Choose Your Own Adventure books.
1: Oh, yeah, but Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson, um, and I've been uh, lucky enough, I got to um, present an award, I think, to Ian Livingston years ago at some... Because he he does computer games now. Um, And I got to give him an award, and I got to thank him for those... Warlock of Firetop Mountain was one of them.
5: I can't remember the titles, but they were all fantasies with dragons. Yeah, and, turn to oh, page Do Do you
1: want to go left? Do you want to um, kill the dwarf, or do you want to stay and eat? Go to page 26 yeah, or page I reckon,
5: 93? I reckon your boys would love it, because they get to interact with the story yeah, that you know you're what? reading
1: with them. That's not a bad idea, actually, uh, Jamie. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, that's, that's, that is that's an excellent suggestion. Quickly yeah, thank you, because you tomorrow. reminded me. So, No, nice one, man. That's a really good idea. Thank you for that. No worries. Uh, See you later, mate. Cheers, Jamie. Thank you. Oh, yeah, that is a cracking idea. The oldest would love that. You know, I've bought um, the oldest uh, the, uh, guitar. We're going to make a guitar. We've got a guitar kit, right, and we're going to paint it and stuff. Well, I bought the youngest so he you wouldn't feel left out. Like a th- You can get these electric guitars that are like three-quarters the size. So they're smaller. Right? Um, and I got it on eBay. It was 30 quid. And I thought, you know, we'll get it in the... A- but, but and the, my, the, they both had haircuts tonight. Their, their hair's such a mess. They both look quite smart. And then my youngest—I got sent a picture of my youngest with his guitar strapped on, with his haircut and his school uniform, and he's looking to the side. That's an album cover. That is an album cover. Oh, what did he want to call? Because the band was originally called the Boys. Oh, but then he, the youngest came up with a brilliant name. Oh, get this. This came from him completely. I don't know where from. Electro, Electro. I like that. I like that. Anyway, look, we've got Oh, oh, oh we got eight minutes. We might, we might squeeze chapter four in. It's a short. Um. um oh, dears. <laughs> Someone sent us in a horribly racist email. <laughs> Chapter four. We might squeeze this in. Uh, 0344 is the telephone number. The demon arrives. I suppose that everyone has had to wrestle with the demon at some time in their life. My demon came out of hiding on the first day of spring during my freshman year. It came out without warning, like a sudden eclipse of the sun. Not in the disguise of alcohol abuse or drugs or gambling or sexual perversion, nothing like that. My demon came out in the form of a horrible compulsion to pray. I say horrible because I didn't want to pray. I had to pray, wherever I was, even though I didn't know what I was supposed to be praying for. When the compulsion came upon me, I would pray in front of whichever building I was about to enter for my next class. I would speak to God out loud, but I tried to move my lips as little as possible when people passed by because I was afraid they'd think I was another one of those poor souls who hadn't bathed or changed clothes for a week, who usually smelled of urine as they mumbled up and down busy streets talking to God or the devil, oblivious of everyone around them. I was excruciatingly aware of everyone around me, but I thought that if I were truly humble, then the presence of all these passerby shouldn't bother me. I kept on mumbling softly, trying to find out, as I prayed, what terrible thing I could possibly have done for which I needed God's forgiveness. The craziness reached a point where, one morning, I plastered down my curly hair with Vaseline, just to prove how truly humble I was. When I looked in the mirror, I saw a freak. I was so embarrassed I didn't know how I could leave the house and go to class, but I did. I walked into my theatre history class and sat next to my lunch pal, Betty Kanzel. She used to make fun of me if I missed breakfast and she heard my stomach gurgling, but on this morning she kept staring at me. What the hell did you do to your hair? I'm just trying something. I'll tell you later. It looks horrible. Why did you do that? I told you, I'm just trying something. I'll tell you later. And then one day, just like that, as if a motor or an electric switch had been turned off, the compulsion stopped. The demon was gone. I felt as if I'd just finished running in a long race, exhausted but exhilarated, and could now be a normal person again. But three or four days later, the demon returned. The pattern repeated itself so often that I felt as Dr. Jekyll must have felt when he could no longer control the comings and goings of Mr. Hyde. I never knew how long each episode would last three days, a week, two weeks. I never knew what set off the compulsion. The only small clue I had was wondering every once in a while why I should have the right to possess money, if I should ever acquire any, when there were people all over the world who were dying of starvation. Being on stage was the thing that saved me from myself. When I was in a play, I was safe. I did four plays in a row that first year, and then, for the fifth production, I was cast as Willie Loman's son Bill in Death of a Salesman, the play that changed my life when I was sixteen years old. On opening night, the auditorium was packed. We'd rehearsed for four weeks, and now I was lying on my ups- in my upstairs bedroom, on stage, waiting for the cue for my first entrance. I didn't want to pray. "'Not tonight, dear God, please!' Maybe the demon forced his way in because it was this particular play. As I waited for my cue, I kept thinking that I could shut him out in plenty of time, but I couldn't. The fear of not praying overpowered me, even though it was a matter of seconds before my entrance. I saw both the play and my brain falling apart. Then somehow, the obligation to the audience and Arthur Miller and my memory of Lee J Cobb and Mildred Dunnock became more important to me than God. I heard my cue, said my first line, and I was safe for the remainder of the play. Years after that, I still carried the inexplicable conviction that once I stepped onto the stage, they couldn't get me, whoever the hell they were, and that I was safe, so long as the curtain was up. We'll finish this chapter. We'll get this in just in the nick of time. I drove home for the Easter break. My mother was so happy to see me that I thought she'd burst she was thrilled that i was going to be home for 10 whole days she laughed so much at my silly jokes that she peed in her pants again now look what you've made me do jerry after dinner i found her in the living room sitting on the couch and weeping quietly i sat beside her what mama what's the matter she said in nine more days you'll be gone A little later, at about seven o'clock, I said I was going to take a short walk around the neighbourhood. It was still light outside and I wanted to get some fresh air. After walking several blocks with the demon pounding at my consciousness trying to get in, I found myself at an open field on the outskirts of town, a field I used to play in only a few years before. The demon knew where he was leading me. I knelt down on the hard earth and started praying. We were never a particularly religious family, when I was growing up, in the sense of prayers at home or rituals, other than going to my grandparents for a meal on Passover and going to the synagogue on the high holidays. Our religion was hugging and kissing each other, a boy being unashamed to kiss his father on the lips, and parents who showed affection in front of anyone. Our only doctrine had been, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So why did the demon invade my psyche when I was 18 years old? My only hope, as I prayed in that field, was to get rid of him once and for all. I covered all topics, everything and everyone whom I could possibly have wronged, including God, of course, and I asked for forgiveness. But in another part of my brain, I was screaming, forgiveness? For what? I had no idea. But the strength of that absurdity couldn't pierced the armour of my compulsion when I finished praying I got up and walked home my mother, my father and my pregnant sister Corinne were all waiting in the living room in their dressing gowns from the expression on their faces I thought that someone had died my mother started crying my father spoke first we just called the police they just left here do you know what time it is "'It's three o'clock in the morning. "'Where were you? "'What in God's name were you doing?' "'I couldn't bring myself to say "'I was praying, Daddy. "'I was lying in a field "'praying to God to forgive me. "'And if he had said, "'Forgive you? "'Forgive you for what?' "'I would have said, "'I don't know.' "'And he would have said, "'For eight hours?' Are you nuts? And he would have been right. So I mumbled something about having fallen asleep in a field because I was so tired. Then I apologised to all of them and went to my bedroom. End of chapter. Thank you for listening this week. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Catherine. We should be back on Monday at 10 o'clock. Until then, ta ta. Talk radio.
0: Dial up some dialogue.
1: Talk radio. We'll get you talking.